What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Strange Road. I'm your host, Mikey, and of course, all the way from North Carolina, the bro host, Bub. Bub, how you doing? I'm great. I'm trying to fit fit my <laughs> fingers into the tiny into little the square box. there. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, awesome. How's it going? Going going great, man. I'm the loner in the Excellent. studio tonight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got Stoner in Disboro and Master Control, as always, making everything look and yeah. sound amazing. Yeah. Uh, there it is. Check that out, Check guys. Check that out. We got the new Check camera. We got the uh, the new so Bro Zone Master Control camera brought to you by Stoner, oh of gosh. course, the, the wizard. Uh, we're adding little pieces and little pieces to the studio, um, having a good time with it. We're, we want those guys to be seen every now and then, uh, you know, they come out here and wave hi to the guests and, and then that's about it. But as far as live, their voice might slip in every now and then, but there you go, baby. We got the master control cam up and running. What you think about that? That, that is awesome. Super stoked. That's the cool. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited that even through all of this pre-running and tech checking, I didn't see any of that. No, that's a surprise for you, bud. Like I, that was that's how we pretty. that's how we roll. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that was absolutely. so awesome. Well, we have an awesome guest tonight. Uh, before that, yes, we do. We'll just let you guys know we uh, we can be found on all social media. We're on TikTok. Stoner's crushing it still on TikTok. Uh, we're on Instagram. Yeah. We're on uh, Twitter at the Strange Road, and also uh, our YouTube channel. Uh, you can check out clips. Uh, we're rebooting shorts, and we have live streams and new content always landing on there. So make sure and subscribe, uh, share this video, give us a review, and that would be incredible. Uh, we love the love, and uh, so we appreciate the heck out of all you guys. Um, you know, we're going to be actually you're awesome hanging out for the premiere, uh, so that's going to be a good time. And so, uh, you know, without further ado, I think we can get started on this one because I'm yeah. super excited. And uh, we're going to bring our guest on. We have Mike Luoma, who is an author, podcaster. He writes science fiction novels. He writes comic books. This guy, I mean, there's not much Mike doesn't do. Uh, and right. his podcast is Glow in the Dark Radio. And uh, the way I found out about Mike, actually, is I found his book, Ancient Stone Mysteries of New England, uh, when an Instagram follower, Psychedelic Bodega, told me about a oh, book nice. uh, that had talked about uh, stone monuments in New England. And so I looked for that book. Mike's book popped up and I hit him up and he was cool enough to talk to me and come on the show. So I want to bring Mike in. That's awesome. Mike, how the heck are you? Thank you so much for being hey. on the Strange Road podcast, sir. Huh. Thank you guys for having me. This is this is fun. This is actually the first podcast I'm doing talking about the new book. Heck so, yeah. That's so cool. Hey, That's so this cool. is, you know, this is real time, guys. Uh, we are yeah. breaking uh, – the Ancient Stone Mysteries of New England book right here for all of you. So we're going to go through it. Um, we're going to dig into this book. We want to talk about your other books and uh, your nonfiction work and, and some of those as well. But first, let's talk a little bit about you, Mike. How did you get involved? Uh, were you always a writer? Um, how did you get uh, into all of this? And were you always just a curious guy? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I guess, yeah, I've always been a curious guy and always been a reader. And 
I was a journalism major in college, but also got into radio. So for a lot of my years, I was doing radio, rock radio in Vermont up here. And then I kind of explored my other interests because not only was I playing, you know, other people's music on the radio, I, I wanted to start to express my own self. And right. as I started to get older, I wanted to put out my science fiction that I had kind of been working on. I had always been writing and trying to put it out and shopping it around while I was doing radio. And finally, when I was about to turn 40, decided I was going to do it myself and self-published and got my nice. first novel, Vatican Assassin. Wow. About a year later, so cool. I wanted to figure out how I could keep promoting it. And that's when I got into podcasting. This is back in like 2006 in the early days of podcasting. Wow, man. But yeah. I, was, I was like, um, how can I get people to check out my book now that it's been out for a while and nobody cares? Well, maybe if I do like a chapter a week, people will get into that and want to, you know, pick up the book or keep listening. And it was, it was really neat to be in on podcasting back in those days because... I'm still friends with a lot of the people that were authors back then doing yeah. the same kind of thing. Yeah, and I used to listen to those radio shows. They were internet radio is what I referred them to. Like podcasts to me back then was like uh, This American Life. Uh, you know, this is right. before Joe Rogan, even Mark Marin, Adam Curry. Oh, yeah. Some of those early, early guys. Um, <clears throat> but there were several, I guess, internet radio shows like, you know, Glow in the Dark Radio. I mean... Tell you the truth, I probably listen to your show, Mike. I listen oh, yeah? to a lot of these type of shows all the time, and, chance, and would yeah. would hop on. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of of some of those uh, shows, but I mean, yeah, man, you were way ahead of the curve. That's incredible. I mean, right. that's you're kind of a pod, one of the the pod, uh, you know, the great uncle pod pod fathers. <laughs> <laughs> pod father, that's yeah. Fun. There's a, I, I was kind of like in the second wave too. There were like people I consider ahead of me, like Scott Sigler mm. and uh, T. Morris. T is one of the guys that wrote like uh, The Idiot's Guide to Podcasting way, way back when. And um, then there was a guy, Evo Morris, that started a site called Podio Books. And that kind of was an aggregating site mm. for all of these people that were doing fiction podcasts back in like 2007 or so. And I got to know people like Scott Sigler, who became a New York Times bestselling author, but was a podcaster to start. Hmm. And he wow, had kind wow, of wow. gone—he had kind of gone the same path. He was like, "I need to promote my book. Maybe I'll try this podcasting thing." That's so, so cool. And, That's really wild. And I've always had a passion for history, but um, I didn't. I. I didn't know I was going to get into this the way I have, the ancient stone mysteries of New England, if you will. I was kind of more getting into things that you guys are into, the mounds and the and the stuff in the Midwest and learning a lot about that. Yeah. And I had no idea there was anything here in New England hmm. for the longest time. Even sure. I, I'm I'm 57. So when I was in, in like grammar school and grade school, it was the 70s and to the 80s. And even though I grew up in a place where there were Native Americans back in the 1500s, 1600s, interacting with colonists, um, 
there, there was none of that. They didn't teach us any of that. So as I got older and began to do my own investigation into what was going on around us here in New England and what could be happening with ancient stonework, I was I was surprised to find that the place I had grown up was like an, an ancient Indian praying village back wow. in like oh, wow. the 1500s, 1560s. And, um, you know, there, there was such an ancient history to the area that we were never taught as kids. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> so that was, that was yep. amazing to learn. And, and then when COVID hit, I had been planning on going out to Ohio for a big trip that summer. And that of course couldn't happen. Everybody got locked down. And so I started looking into stuff in New England that I had kind of been peripherally bumping into. Yeah. I was always kind of fascinated by the stone chambers, but I'd never seen one. Yeah. So I started to to look into those a little more deeply and began to find out that there was a chance that this was all ancient indigenous work, that yeah. it predated the, the colonial people, that it wasn't built as a result of sheep farming, that the chambers weren't built as root cellars. Oh my God. Um and and it's just eye-opening as as you go through and begin to get out there and start to see the stuff. That for me is what changed everything. Yep. Was getting out into the field and seeing the stone chambers. Like when I first got into the Upton stone chamber, that has a long narrow corridor. And inside, it's like a beehive-shaped chamber. And when you're in there, you're really isolated, except you can see the outside through a you know small doorway. And they, there are people that say you can actually do, inter, do stellar alignments from the chamber, looking out through that door to the local or the, the nearby horizon line where mm -hmm. there's a ridge. But just being in that chamber... I kind of put my consciousness out and I wanted to say, yeah. what is this place? Mm -hmm. Is this anything? Who built this? What is this? Yeah. I didn't expect to get an answer, but I kind of did. Oh, you did. Was, oh, what? It was it was an answer. It was like <laughs> then this happened. <laughs> yeah, well that, that that was a result of it. I I was like That's amazing, I, I, man. I just got a sense that like people had been coming into this chamber, sitting down and communing with their ancestors and getting something. And I couldn't yeah. tell what that something was. It wasn't like for me to know, mm -hmm. but it was something profound in some way connected them with their past. And I could just see like one person after another come in and sit down like they were superimposed over each other. Mm -hmm. It was like trying to give me a sense of time. And I'm like, what is this place? And it was really just a sense of, I'm the place. And it wasn't like a personal like sense. It wasn't like I felt personally some deity or anything. It was right. more like just an immense sense of place. Yeah. And that's hard to describe, but it was it was intense. Yeah. And that's, one that's of those, where this all started. That's one of those kind of experiences where you just don't really have words for it. And I had the same experience the first time I went to Serpent Mound. I mean, I've gone back 20 some times, maybe more, um, you know, kind of accidentally found out about Serpent Mound from, you know, we didn't grow up 
learning anything. We didn't take field trips to Mount Earthworks. We didn't take. We never no. learned about Serpent Mound at all in high school. We I wow. took an ancient civilization nope. class my senior year, which was amazing. We learned about the Incas, the Mayas. That's what got me into ancient civilizations. Was taking that my senior year in high school was Spielman and Willie. Uh, and it was just kind of yeah. like an easy class that I thought was, hey, this is going to be a simple history class. Blew How my did mind. I miss that class? Learned about the Incas, the that. Egyptian, the Aztec, the Mayas, and it was incredible. And that's kind of what got me really going. But, but again, we could have learned about Serpent Mound or Newark Earthwork in that class. I see you the Earthwork You would think it would be here. something they would teach, you know, being... Close to to the source, there were ten thousand of them here. Something they would thousands mention. of mounds, yeah. you know, earthworks. Yeah, and I feel some like Adam of them are Sandler and uh, Wedding Singer, like information that would have been helpful to me yesterday. Like you could have told <laughs> yeah. me about. Uh, I feel like we're we're so far along in life, and we could have already had these building blocks of knowledge that you know maybe we could have dug into even deeper. But don't get me wrong, Mike's pretty. Headlong into it. I mean, you love Serpent Mount. I love Serpent Mount, but Mikey is definitely more uh, involved and has a bigger knowledge base of it. But say he had gotten that information a decade ago, yeah, two decades ago. I mean, we've been out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, long enough now that you could have had all of that and really built yeah. upon it, rather well, than going, "How did I not know about any of this?" But looking back, that was kind of the cool thing about it is because I didn't know anything about it. It was a mystery. And in a lot Fair of ways, enough. it still is. Like, if it would have been this kind of big mainstream thing that, like, everybody just kind of knows. Well, the thing is, I knew about Serpent Mound, mm-hmm. but I didn't. And I knew about Burial Mounds, but I never put the connection that it was this gigantic civilization that was building these geometrically perfect, using mm-hmm. phi and pi and really advanced mathematics and geometry, and also aligning them to the stars and the sun and the moon. So that part into Mike's chamber, I had to find out about it and learn about it and go, Oh my God, these aren't just burial mounds. These are astronomical wonders of the world. Just as advanced. I think as anything you'll find in Mexico, I've been to Mexico. I've been to new Mexico. I've, I've, I've seen, uh, I've been to Stonehenge. Stonehenge is absolutely incredible. They're just made of earth. So they're not standing out like these big giant megalithic pyramids. Although some of them probably were encased in uh, limestone and probably looked more like pyramids in ancient times. You know, they might not have been earth that when you walk up, they probably had some kind of limestones everywhere in Ohio. Why wouldn't you encase those? I I know Miamisburg Mound for sure had limestone encased with that around it. Um, And it might be a six-sided pyramid. It, It might actually have six sides. It's just all worn away. So, you know, the thing is, is just like anything that's, you know, the antiquarians, they wrote tons about Ohio. You know, there were uh, the, the field archaeologists from the Smithsonian or somewhere else would come in and a lot of times take everything. And now, you know, the records, it's just so been poorly handled from day one in America. We got the beautiful in Squire and Davis illustration. Yes. Uh, which, boy, we were talking about our friend Jeffrey Wilson a little bit. Um, but you know, Jeffrey has a, I don't want to give too much away, but he's got a new book coming out about, uh, it's the, um, basically the reboot of, of Squire and Davis's, um, uh, lost, uh, 
civilizations of the Mississippi Valley. Am I getting that right? Why am I having a brain fart right now? Um, Something like that. Yeah, so Squire and Davis's book. But um, he's found the original maps and the hmm. surveys that no one's ever seen. No one's ever seen these. And has found out some pretty informa- pretty interesting information that will is going to blow a lot of people's minds about that book and the creation of that book. And so, what we're learning that was 1842 is when the Squire and Davis uh, ancient monuments of the Mississippi Valley. There you go. I knew I was going to get it. Um, and you know there were guys that had written some books before that that those guys had piggybacked off of and used the source materials and so forth. Um, but from that window of ancient monuments to 1910, boy, things really changed a lot in the view of of American antiquarian. Mm. There's never been a great appreciation for ancient indigenous work. I mean. A right. lot of the things that were preserved were preserved because of, like, uh, well, by accident. Like, you look at the Great Mound in Indiana. Mm-hmm. That was only preserved because they had an amusement park built over. Right. A hundred percent. Newark, it's too. It's great. Put a, Newark's on put a golf amusement course. park on that. Yeah. You know, but, the you know, Now we can go there. Yeah. Now we can go there and, and stand in the middle and realize that, you know, this this – this ditch and, and mound, they were actually constructing an artificial horizon around themselves so they right. could look at the stars and, you know, chart the stars right. in an area where there was no, like, there were no ridges to right. use. Exactly. Um, exactly. So it's, it, it there's been such a, a lack of appreciation for indigenous work. And that's what I discovered when I started looking into the stonework in New England, is that everybody assumes it was built by... You know, people who came here from Europe and, and, and or sheep farmers. There's also yeah. people who are like, oh, this was all built in 30 years between 1810 and 1840 during the Merino sheep craze where everybody was raising sheep. Yeah, but some of those walls, some of the ceiling, the way those ceilings are laid and come together, the way they stack those giant, I mean, what are we talking? A ton, two tons, three tons, some of these? Some of these stones oh. are huge that create these, the the roofs. And the dome, from yeah. the photos I've seen, I mean, they're just perfectly laid. Like a sheet well, farmer's doing that kind of masonry? Come on. I'm going to tell you that the indigenous, the ancient Native Americans in the Northeast work with stone. Oh, for sure. And they did amazing things with stone. Right. They perched boulders. I think they actually altered the landscape to try to make like ridges look like serpents mm. rising up out of the the underworld because they looked at the the cosmos as kind of a three-tiered system mm. you had the underworld where you had your water serpents and and oh my god water panthers and things you have the the day world uh, or our world where we live and then you have the sky world where the thunderbirds were yeah. and a lot of the stonework appears to have been built to try to tie all three together. Yeah. So that the reason that you have a stone serpent is that it's drawing the serpent energy from the underworld into this world. And the reason that it's oriented towards a certain alignment may be to draw in the sky world yeah. and tie the three into balance in that way. Father oh, Sky wow. and Mother Earth, com- or it's this dualistic 
type of, um, you know, this type of religion where it's Father Sky, Mother Earth, and it's all about harmony. Um, you know, we have this, there are stone structures in Ohio on top of these Fort Hill, uh, Spruce Hill. They have walls up on top. It looks like the, the top of this hill is just shaved down perfectly flat. And then on the outside are these, you know, areas that kind of look like gaps. There's gates, but what were those gaps for? They were for, like you said, they're building these yeah, alignments. Yeah. So that's maybe, um, maybe a ceremonial walkway. Uh, maybe it was for a gap to see a certain star alignment at a certain time. Um, you know, again, who really knows? There's some guys doing archaeoastronomy, but they're not taken serious by, you know, the, the mainstream archaeological community. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, archaeologists aren't, you know, astronomers. So it, it takes a lot of different groups of people to really research and, and figure this stuff out. So it's really cool that someone like you with a totally different perspective is out here pointing some of these things out for us. Uh, the serpents, right. for example, I think is the most fascinating thing about your book and it's all in your book. And that's what resonated with me and wanted to give you a shout to come on this show is because, um, you know, I've told this story before, but we found a petroglyph serpent in the Verde Valley in Arizona that's uh, has seven bends and it is aligned with solstices and equinoxes and it's shadow play, lights of dagger that hit these bends in the serpent, just like we have in Ohio. So you have serpents. Um, you know, Jeffrey on our show talked about at least, what, 10 serpents that he knows um, in the United States. 10 other serpent mounds that are just mounds. So it's it's a really, really interesting iconography that we can't get away from on this show. VJ, our buddy from India, um, you know, if you ever would want to listen to our episodes with VJ, I think you would really connect with him. Maybe have a chance where you guys could talk together too because he's been uh, researching serpents uh, and the connection with ancient India and ancient Ohio and that these places were actually yogic temples the kundalini yoga temples and that these places were these kind of consciousness shifting machines of sorts um, and they're using astronomy and geometry and and kind of ties languages together that are native american words and uh the ancient language of tamil which is what he speaks or tamil however you want to pronounce it and there in south india um, but I bet he would be blown away to see your research on these serpents. And after this, I'm definitely going to share that with them. Uh, but he'd be somebody to connect with, Mike, for sure. Cool. Yeah, I, um, I didn't expect to see serpents, and I didn't think that these stone walls, walls as I as I don't call them anymore. Yeah, uh, right. Were were serpents? But the the more I looked into them, and the more that I began to see like repeating patterns. I began to realize that these weren't just clearing piles. They weren't just, right. you know, stuff that was pushed out of the way so they could farm or sheep or whatever. But there was there was an actual design and structure to a lot of these old stone rows that it, it was like a repeating pattern and it was serpentine. And as you start to look into this, there's there's people out there who have been doing research a lot longer than me, like mm -hmm. um, 
there's a guy by the name of Tim McSweeney who is on Facebook, who has a group called uh, Celebrating the Ceremonial Stone Landscapes wow. of Turtle Island. Oh, and, God. Uh, waking Up on Turtle Island. And he will, he's got a blog, <laughs> Waking Up on Turtle Island, and he'll show, like, the serpents that he sees and illustrate them with actual, like, eyes and antlers to try to get people to see these stone rows as serpent forms, as petroforms. So there's there's a lot of people that have been doing work in this area before me that I've now connected with, yeah. and that's really rewarding. Um, and so I don't want to say like it's just me seeing these things, but I've no, been no. picking it up I'm, from the people that I've been learning from. I mean, yeah. we've had that these, was going to be a question. Yeah, when you said if, Turtle how, Island, how, my yeah. my brain broke because we had another gentleman on that's been researching from India, South India, uh, turtle migrations and ancient uh, Tamil people following turtles to America, and this idea of Turtle Island, and also our friend Ross Hamilton talks about Serpent Mountain being the head of Turtle Island, and Ohio being essentially like either the heart. Of Turtle Island, like really North America was this Manitou civilization. And um, so these are pieces and puzzles, Mike, that we've been really putting together. And this Turtle Island theme, the serpent theme, we can't get away from it. And here we yeah, are again well, talking about Turtle Island. You know, I, right. I really think it, it goes back to the indigenous history of this, it's this 100%. continent, you know, and I think that. The complexity of their civilization was greater than we give them credit for. Oh, 100%. And I even think there's a chance that if you go back to the Ice Age, there could have been a civilization here, mm -hmm. indigenous civilization, that inspired the tales of Atlantis. Yep. Um, you know, if you really want to reach far, you can, you can maybe say that. Because I don't think the stories of Atlantis that we have are necessarily accurate in their detail, but they may be accurate in describing a civilization that came before. Yeah. If that makes any sense to you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it could have been a civilization here on the other side of the Atlantic. It could have been an outpost for the Atlantean civilization or the, you know, it's a worldwide culture. Atlantis was a city the Atlanteans were the people, but it was kind of like the United States, how we've kind of spread out all over the world. People speak English all over the world, um, and we spread our culture all over the world. We talked about this at nauseum too on the show of we could have been part of Atlantis, if you will, or, you know, uh, like I said, an outpost, like in Star mm -hmm. Wars. You know, you're you you've got your your empire outpost out on the far reaches. Maybe we were part of that. <clears throat> and it right. sure seems like it, because all the geometry, all the mathematics, the Newark Earthwork base is the same dimensions as the Great Pyramid base. What's that about? Why are they there's using the same exact dimensions? Yeah, there are some interesting parallels in in Abnaki lore. Abnaki are the the indigenous people of Vermont who've been here since time immemorial. And they tell some very interesting stories about like the Patagogiac, who are the Thunder Brothers. And in some versions of the story, these seven Thunder Brothers come up out of Lake Champlain dressed in white mm, to teach God. the people 
you you see where I'm going? Oh, what? dude, and and you know what? I love what? Lake Champlain. That whole area. I want to go camp up there. So I've heard so many stories well, from that region. One hundred percent. I, I want to go up to wherever this camp. Is, I think know? Lake Champlain could have been where it's, Atlantis was. It's that's, so that's, that's my I would doubt my it. early theories. So there's somewhere in the the pictures I've I've, I've brought. There is a picture of. The Lake Champlain area, when it was the Champlain Sea or Lake Vermont. Okay. Um, hopefully that map is in there. It's, um, but when you see it, it like shows that this area in Vermont was actually surrounded by water. Okay. And they're, they're, you know, like I said, wow. there's not sufficient detail to, to say it was circular seas or anything, but. It was surrounded, and there were outer islands that could have been serpent islands. Sure. And so, in my wildest dreams and my my fanciest flights, I do think that it's very possible that this could have been an ancient homeland that was interpreted later as Atlantis, because. The, the Champlain Sea was actually attached to the Atlantic Ocean. So you used to be able to mm. go up around Labrador and come down into the area that is now the, the Champlain Valley or Lake Champlain. And that would make sense. If that was all underwater, it would all be connected up there. There's so many islands. You yeah. Know, when so you get up in cool. Canada, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, um, you know, we've spoke with. Yeah, uh, I need to go to that lake. Yeah, dude, for sure. Is this the map? Am I seeing that? No, there, no, it was an actual map map, and, okay. and maybe it's uh, maybe it's not in there. I don't know. Oh, it should be right about here. Cause, I don't think um, it's in there. Yeah, that's okay. That's all right. But yeah, back in back in the days when there was the Champlain Sea, this is like at the very tail end of the Ice Age, mm -hmm. as the as the water melted, the ice sheets had placed sufficient weight upon the land that it actually pushed the earth's crust down mm. and with all the water that was melting and the weight on the land the atlantic ocean was connected to lake champlain as the champlain sea mm. and so it's possible it's it's a far out idea but it's possible but i do think mm. there was a, a civilization on lake champlain in the ice age and they didn't used to think that Indians lived in Vermont at all. Hmm. Um, that was like one of those things that people said. It was like a happy hunter ground. People just passed through it. But hmm. back in the 90s, they discovered that there had been people living here, indigenous habitation, constantly going all the way back through the archaic period to the Paleo Indians on the shores of Lake Champlain. Wow. It was, so they just... They just completely dropped the ball on the fact that there were tons of people that inhabited that area. There, like, yeah. <laughs> sorry, that's too funny. Like, no, no, they just passed through this beautiful landscape and rich natural resources, right. and you know they they just passed on this and kept going on their way. And see, at the, at the time when the Europeans came through, it was Samuel Champlain came up Lake Champlain and named it for himself. Which sure. Is, you know, cool. If you can do that, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, at the time the the Iroquois had been coming in, and the Abnaki and the Algonquians were fighting with the Iroquois, so the area was like disputed. 
So that's kind of like the impression that they got. Oh, this isn't a place anybody lives. They just all fight over it and pass through it. Yeah. But that's just what it was at that time for a right. moment. You know? Right. Right. And there's so many lakes above that's Lake fun. Champlain that all kind of connect down through, correct? From up in Canada uh, on not down. Not really. We just go, we go up, uh, you get the Richelieu River and that goes up to the St. Lawrence. But, okay. um, but the, the, the watersheds are connected. Mm-hmm. That's so and cool. The, yeah. The Native Americans used to range across the, the entire area. Yeah, for using sure. Using the whole watersheds and using all the rivers. Well, the Algonquins were in Michigan or all around the lake. Grand, you know, the they of course they traveled all the way up through upstate New York, you know, in Lake Oneida, the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. I mean, there's so many incredible places that, uh, you know, there would be massive s settlements. Um you know, even in the Delaware River Valley and the Hudson River Valley, I mean, there's a lot of stone chambers in that region too, if I'm not mistaken. But you find that myth all over New England, where people say, "Oh, the the Indians didn't live here." Yeah, and I I think it's a it's in a way to assuage the guilt that people feel about having taken Indian land or you know yeah. taken over Indian land. Right. Yeah. So you know. If if Indians didn't live in all the places they say Indians didn't live, then they didn't live anywhere. Right. So <laughs> right. they were never here. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, just yeah. And that's, that's the erasure that you hear about. You know? Sure. And, sure. And 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 that's so true. Like I was I was mentioning before, I found out the place I grew up had been an Indian praying village. You know, this is where like the Christianized Indians had gathered. There were like five different cities along the, the frontier at the time, which is now like the I-495 corridor in Massachusetts. Mm. And wow. not only that, but a mile away from where I grew up, there's a place called the Flag Swamp. And that's where they discovered the oldest stone construction in New England, in Massachusetts, which was a Native American stone wall built as part of a rock shelter. And this was found at the end of the 70s. And they found it because they were doing a research like assessment before building a highway. But even finding this 4,000-year-old stone wall and this ancient habitation didn't stop them from building the highway. After they dug it up, they blew it up, and they built the highway right through there. Oh, there's this a is dagger in the things. heart. Oh, yeah. It, it's one of those things that kills me, though, because it's like 4,000 years ago, you have an example of Native Americans building with stone in Massachusetts that nobody knows about or talks about. And even and the fact they blew that it up. <laughs> even if it's blown up, it was still at least written about. Somebody had some kind of a record for it. But because it's not here now, you know, you're going off of a lot of times like what someone said 150 years ago. They're teaching the same mm -hmm. thing that they're teaching in the 1890s of, hey, yeah. this is the fact, this is what it is, and they're still teaching it going all the way through. And when new information comes out, it's like, well, that just doesn't fit our timeline. That doesn't fit the narrative that we've already have built. So this kind of stoppage happens. 
where new information doesn't get cycled in, new research comes in. It's like, well, it's, you know, Serpent Mounds actually could be 5,000 years old. It could be much, much older. Maybe it's over 12,000. Maybe it's pre-Diluvian. Maybe there was a site here before the serpent was ever here that was a holy sacred site, considering that it's inside of an impact crater and on top of this ridge, and it's just like a mind-blowing spot to right by a river system. Uh, so here, here's a thought. What, what if Serpent Mound was originally a stone serpent? Because they have found stones inside of the Serpent Mound. What if it began life as a stone serpent that was added to or with Earth over time? Right. Sure. And that's a possibility, too. And maybe they were just laying stones on top to just make the shape. And eventually it kind of grew. Now, they did know that there is a stone altar. And you can see it with Jeff's LIDAR, Jeffrey Wilson's LIDAR, that there was something in the oval of the, the what they call the cosmic egg, the head. There was something there. They found the stones just in the woods. In the woods. Just tossed. Garbage. And the stones are right there. So there you go. They've they found that big monolith at the bottom that they said, oh, that's nothing. That's just a, a rock that came on. It's got four sides, rings like a bell when you hit it with a hammer on the end of it. It's, it's just laying down there on the bottom of the – you can hike right to it. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, and then you mentioned water serpent. There's a water serpent below that Tom told us about in 2019. We hiked down there the first time, and it's this rock face that kind of – fell off the, the side of the cliff, fell down to the water, and the piece that's sticking up is this serpent head, this giant in that area is super vibey. And there's been evidence of uh, pottery shards, and there's people doing ceremony in there in ancient times, these water ceremonies. Um, and it's right below in the Brush Creek. So you have the serpent above, the water serpent below, and um, none of that's been dug. None of that's been researched down there officially. Just, you know, no big deal. Nothing when to I went see here. To see, when I went to see the Serpent Mound, I actually went down and, and did the trek down and around the, the, the mound so you can see some of the stuff along the creek down there. Yeah, awesome. Because because you don't usually hear about that. No. No. Mm -hmm. No. But, but yeah, it's... Um, it's illuminating to look into this early history, the the ancient or not so ancient history. Yeah, that you know was right in our backyards, and they didn't tell us about. It's no wonder we want to learn more. You know, exactly. It, you get a sense it's, that it's almost being hidden. That's where I get more fury. I get more enthralled, especially in 2012, 2013, when I was really on a mission to f try to figure out and understand these legends of giants, not even legends, but giant skeletons being pulled out of mounds all over the United States and, and especially in Ohio. And, uh, and just that, like being blown away, number one, that I didn't know anything about this in my own state. How did I was into weird stuff my whole life? I've been interested. How did I not know about this? And that's what really just snapped me out of a fog and became obsessed because it really was fishy that I hadn't known about this. I don't know how, if that makes sense to you. Um, oh, it does because I had a I had a similar kind of thing happen with this with with my search and the and the stone stuff in in New England. 
One of the books that people recommend when you start getting into this is a book called Manitou mm-hmm. by James Maver and Byron Dix. It's it's 1989. These are the first guys to say, hey, we think a lot of this stonework in New England is of Native American origin. Yeah. And here's why. And here's, you know, there's stellar alignments. And so that was the case they were making in Manitou. I was reading the book and I'm visiting my mom. It's like, you know, quarantine time. So I had to like go through all the hoops, but I'm finally in her backyard and I'm sitting there reading this book. And I had never heard of Flag Swamp, this place a mile away from me. I knew like when I was a kid, I could ride my bike on the highway before it was built because it was cool that, you know, it wasn't open yet. And I knew that some guys had been digging there for Indian artifacts. That's about all I knew. But I didn't put two and two together. And then I was reading in Manitou this book, at sitting there in my mom's backyard, about the Flag Swamp and this 4,000-year-old stone row. I'm like, that's a mile away from here. Incredible. You know? And and here I am in my 50s, and I had never heard of this. In your 50s, yeah, too. Wow. I I mean, that's... That's what I'm talking about. I mean, I discovered this stuff. I was probably like, I don't know, 32, 31. I mean, like I said, I'd been to Serpent Mountain at that point, but never put all this stuff together and didn't have that mind-blowing like, oh, my God, especially when the park ranger began to tell me about the story of the giants and then held back, and then we chased him down the parking lot, and he told us about Legends of Giants after we made him like, dude, you you can't just hold that back. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it's like, why is this park ranger telling us all this about giant skeletons? I'm like, there's no way this, how have I not known? And it just sent me on this path. And, you know, I, I'm not uh, completely obsessed, but when I sit here and talk to someone like you, I get that that burst of energy about this stuff again, because it brings me back to my own discovery and awakening. Uh, and like you said, in our own backyard, Boom. You know, you're in your 50s. I'm in my 30s. It's really no difference. We're we're grown men just learning about this really cool shit right in our own backyard. That's why I did the uh, the subtitle, Discovering Ancient History All Around Us, on my book. Because I was like, I'm going to put that it is here. Up. There it is. Yep. It is here. It's everywhere. This is the cover you know? of Mike's book here. Um, we have uh, to show that. Yeah, cool. And, so and there it the, is. Uh, Upton Stone Chamber is the top image. There's uh, the zinc erratic is down in the lower right. And then there's the calendar one chamber on the lower left and a feature in central Vermont. I can't say the site because it's a private site that I'm not supposed to reveal. But yeah. that thing looked like a turtle. That's a turtle. That's 100% <laughs> that, a turtle. That, I, that was like, oh, okay. Incredible. And. Now, here, and, um, here was a chamber here. That's the interior of the Upton chamber. Okay. And I think as you look down inside of that chamber, it almost looks like a profile face on the left-hand side. Oh, yeah, I see it. Yeah. And and the the way that that profile is, it, it kind of changes as you walk past it. It's it's Wow. It's a little bit strange. Look at that. It's not supposed to be anything. Yeah. Yeah, those are slabs good. and there's some like ice and water and yeah, the, the, that's really the, cool. The lower part of the chamber, the, the uh, is is usually 
usually has water in it every time I've been. Mm-hmm. And I've actually heard one Native American tribal historic preservation officer describe that as a way they they did observations of the stars. They they would look at the stars reflected in the water mm-hmm. that was pooled in in that entryway. Yeah. So I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to look at that. Yeah, there's a yeah. chamber in Pennsylvania that is a uh, solstice summer solstice pool. It's a carved, laid, uh, freshwater spring. They built the chamber around a spring and then essentially cased it in this beautiful stone. And it's just crystal clear water. And you sit at the back of this chamber and that summer solstice sunset comes in there and lights up that chamber with the pool and just glows that whole room. And that's just over in Pennsylvania, over in Coal Town. You know, I mean, how many of these things are there? There's got to be yeah, the, maybe thousands we don't know about. The one that we're looking at in the, the pictures in Neshoba or uh, Acton, Massachusetts, but on the Neshoba Brook uh, Trail. And that one they say is a potato cave, like it was used for storing <laughs> ice and for storing potatoes. But I think it's older. It's been restored, so you can't really get the vibe from it. Yeah. But I, I I think that it predates colonial usage, even if it saw colonial usage. Right. And I think that's some of what we see with a lot of this stonework is that it was later adapted and used by colonial folks and settlers who came in afterwards. I think they came in, they saw stonework, and they didn't think the savages built it. So, you know, um, they would have thought, well, this was a quick claim or, you know, somebody was here and just left this and yeah. then would have used what was there. So I think that we saw a lot of people adapting these structures, whether it was stone rows or stone chambers to be used as, you know, part of their farms. But it isn't necessarily I mean, because <laughs> they're originally there. I mean, what we're looking at here, folks that are just listening, is you have an entranceway that above you is a giant stone slab with now is there mortar when you get in there are these stones laid with mortar no, are they dry? dry stone they're all dry laid which is you know that's a really hard thing to do that's crazy not a lot yeah. of people knew how to do that that's a really like i mean that's like freemasons and people that that's a uh, really, can't. and Jim Vieira and those guys were stonemasons, and they're visiting these stone chambers. And the first thing they said is, "Like we're stonemasons, we know how hard this is to create this. What we're looking at, folks, is this huge stone on top of the roof with these dry laid stones and the and uh, that are creating these walls." Now, Mike, how far like back do you blocks. think that? Yeah, yeah. how far well, back? This one's is interesting. That goes back about six feet, and then it turns. So that's almost a U shape. Okay, it's not not even just an L shape, but almost comes back around a little yeah. bit, which wow. is why they say it's it was used for ice. Wow, <laughs> I don't think so. Right, ice. Um, so that's I mean, the other one. Okay, um, that's just crazy. This mm-hmm. one looks like. We've been talking about J.R.R. Tolkien and The Hobbit and yeah, uh, yeah. You know, walking trees and ants lately. So uh, if you want to explain this to, <laughs> to what we're looking at here to our listeners and, and the people at home, where is this and, and, and what, are we, what, what is this place? 
This is now on, on private property in Southwood, Stock, Vermont, but it's the Calendar 2 Chamber. Um, again, got its name from Maver and Dix, the guys who wrote Manitou. A lot of these okay. chambers have names that they gave them. Okay. Um, that shows you how influential their book is. Sure. You know. But this one here has a winter solstice alignment, so that when the winter solstice sunrise comes up, it actually strikes the back of the chamber. Hmm. Um, I, I know a researcher who thinks that it could be a uh, Celtic monk's uh, oratory, hmm. because it has the same basic foundation outline as some over in Orkney. Hmm. I'm not sure of that. Hmm. I... I I, I can't go there yet. Yeah. I I think most of these things are indigenous. Yeah. I'm not sure that this one is, but it does have a winter solstice orientation on it. Yeah. And I think there's a couple more pictures, maybe if we go Yeah, totally. Uh, fast. But yeah, this is the same chamber. Wow. If you can see that's looking beautiful. Looking in yeah. through the door, you can even see there's the light. Uh, a, a little bit of light in the back. Yeah. That's because there is a little bit of a vent above it. But that's about where the the shaft of light hits. And, you know, we're looking at a, a square chamber or a rounded chamber front and a square door and the light at the back of this chamber. And that's where the light hits on the winter solstice when the, the sun comes up. Wow. So that one's a winter solstice. The one in Pennsylvania is a summer solstice that lights up this big pool. I mean, th this is just... Uh, That's really cool. Now, have you heard of uh, uh, Dennis from the? I, I don't know if you ever come in contact with Dennis from Stonehenge of America. Um, America uh, Stonehenge, yeah, from New Hampshire? Uh, America Stonehenge. I don't know Dennis. I know of him, but I, I don't know him. Have you had a chance to go out there yet? Not yet. No. Yeah, well, I would. I, love I like to finding previously there. undiscovered yeah. spots. Yeah, I'm kind sure. of. Um, because so much is here that people don't know about. Yeah. I usually totally. try to find places that haven't been found and, and, and that's great. Search out the new alignments. Bless you for that, because we need that, you know. Um Dennis is just just kind of reminded me because he's got uh Equinox markers and solstice markers on his property. And um from what I understand, they've discovered serpents out there recently as well. So there's a lot of a lot of overlay with um with everything you you're talking about, it's just really resonating with me. Uh, but we're hoping yeah, this a, network is just growing and growing. There's a couple of researchers who are active in the um, ceremonial stone landscape idea, the um, the indigenous work that have looked at America's Stonehenge, and that's uh, James and Mary Gage. Okay. I don't know if you've heard of the Gages, but. They've done a lot of work both on that site and a lot of other stone sites all around New England. And I don't know, always agree with their work, but yeah. they are doing some significant work on stone sites and stuff like this. Yeah. But, uh, and, you know, I've got a, interpretations. A, People have interpretations. You can mm -hmm. have an open discussion and, and, you know, as long as you're open-minded and they could be right, they could be wrong. You could have your own ideas about it. But I like the fact that at least someone's talking about it. At least these folks, right. the ages are doing the research. You're doing the research. Dennis is doing, is helping, you know, preserving these properties. Uh, I'm, this is on private land, which is, I think, helpful. Um, you know, maybe it's kind of sucks that the general population can't just, I guess, park at a, in a gift store parking lot and, and, you know, walk up and see this, but 
places like this need to be protected because I don't know how how long that thing would have been around if it wasn't on private property. What do you think about? I mean, has this yeah, family right. been in their family for years or? Actually, the the people that own it now, I think, are are fairly new, but it was in one family for quite some time, from mm-hmm. what I've I've heard. So good. Um, the, there is a, a another chamber, the Calendar One chamber, which is in a lot less of a ideal condition. Mm. And the group I mentioned, the New England Antiquities Research Association, NERA, has yeah. been trying to work with the Vermont Land Trust, who just, I think, have gained ownership of that. And they are trying to preserve that chamber, which is is in kind of sad shape at this point. Mm. Well, that's good. I'm really, really happy to hear that. You know, I think... But a lot of this stuff... I, I worry. I like you, yeah. you know, like you say, it, I, I have a Facebook group, Ancient Stone Mysteries of New England Facebook group, and there's about 12,000 people in there. And we're really careful about revealing locations yeah. and telling Absolutely. people where things are, because Absolutely. even though we're trying to educate people to the fact that this stuff likely exists, that, yeah. hey, that old stone row isn't likely as much of a colonial artifact as you think it could be even older. Mm-hmm. We want to educate people to that, but at the same time, we don't want somebody going there and tearing down that wall or yeah, deciding, right. you know, hey, that was really cool that you showed there's all those quartz inlays in this thing that was supposed to just be a stone wall. Yeah. I went and stole the quartz. Hey, hey thanks. Oh, my you God. Know? Right, right, right. And someone would do careful. that. Someone would do that, unfortunately. Well, wait, we've talked about this before. I think I've said it multiple times that I don't know that I would tell any scientific even no. research community. I'd probably Not do what I you're saying. Something on my property, find that net, yeah, find that network of people that talk about it and research it and that have the best interest at heart and maybe have that internal network that's aware of it, right? So it's kind of interesting to find out that there are almost like these internal networks already being built. And I'm happy to hear that because there is a preservation of it, albeit, you know, the dissemination of that information might take a little more time and um, finesse to get it out somehow um, without having the broad, you know, educational system of it or kind of going through that filter. But Hey, I think we need an alternative at this point. Like, I think we need another way to go about it that we might be able to um, do these things without having to go the traditional route. Yep, exactly. And get a better result, you know, and and preserve better history and get a better understanding of it, hopefully. What's been cool about what I've been doing is that having the Facebook group has had the effect of people coming to me asking me to look at their sites. And oh, that yeah. has been very cool. I've been part of a, a, a research into a site on a mountainside up in northern Maine. That oh, wow. It's like above where there were farms. It's a, it's where just some logging went on. But we're finding like these stone forms that are similar to what we consider to be stone prayers, indigenous yeah. stone prayers, like we find down in Acton, Massachusetts. But here they are up on a, a mountainside in Maine. Wow. Um, oh, wow. And, you know, so we were able to bring in Nira and then, you know, there's archaeologists who are looking into this. One of them is a guy by the name of Curtis Hoffman. He has a book called Stone Prayers that looks into the indigenous work. And Curtis came up and was at this site and, like, helped uh, do some of the sampling. And I, I got to to help like dig some control samples. I didn't do the actual sampling, but they've, they've like 
they put up uh, light um, tents that keep out the light completely over these structures, and then they dig down underneath them. They don't want to disturb the structure itself, mm. but they dig down underneath the structure yep. and take soil and and uh, mineral samples. And then they test those using optically stimulated luminescence dating because you can't do carbon dating on inorganic material like stone. But mm -hmm. OSL dating, you can do some dating. And so we've actually been doing dating on these features up on this mountainside in Maine and should get the results later this month or next month. From what, oh, cool. From what the property owner told me. But yeah, I was I was actually on a research That's trip incredible. with Nera and this this archaeologist Curtis Hoffman, wow, looking at these awesome. features. So it's wow. it's wild what happens once you start to get into things and 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 I guess do it the right way. Yeah, I guess I, I don't know. It's like every everything I've tried to do, I've put out videos on on sites, and people have have embraced those and told me, you know, hey, here's some tips and things you can do better. And yeah. it, it's it's been really kind of a wonderful experience. And that's that's what I wrote the book about is like my first two years of getting into doing this stuff because yeah. it's been that kind of one thing after another leading into another. This came yeah. in after it was just a natural flow. Yeah. It's really been cool. Oh man, it sounds like it. That's that's amazing. Um, we actually have a friend, a Migama elder that grew up in northern Maine, David Lombear Senapass, um, that you know has a whole presentation that he does about the Migama and their history with the Knights Templar. And so you have oh, okay. Templars who were you know predecessors of the Freemasons, held uh, you know ancient mysteries from the the Middle East and and all their uh, adventures. And and so um, he has uh, the Migama flag, which is a red cross identical to the Knights Templar cross. If you Wikipedia the Migama flag, it's the square red cross of the Knights Templar. Um, and so you know we're Templars here teaching people how to use stone. Um, it sure seems to think so. Um, that's in Nova Scotia, Northern Maine. Um, so See, I, I don't agree with that, but. That's me. I am, yeah, it, sure. I I I I have could my be own, older. I think it's an older tradition. Yeah, for sure. I just don't think I I I have this like flinching reaction when people say that indigenous needed to be taught things. Yeah, I just think that they had a lot more knowledge than we give them credit for. Oh, for sure. And so I don't. It, what I think is interesting is that you can see some of the stonework in Europe change after people came over here and saw yeah. what the stonework looked like over here. Right. So I think there's been more west to east than we give credit for as opposed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or or you know from from our side of the Atlantic going back over. Right. But yeah, maybe um, they came here and learned about stonework and and those mysteries from the Native Americans here. You know, it goes both but, ways. But, but I do know that, you know, there are Mi'kmaq traditions and Mi'kmaq traditions about Knights Templar visiting. So mm -hmm. if I'm going to say that I respect indigenous opinions, 
I have to respect those opinions as well. Yeah, and he doesn't talk about stone structures or anything like that. He just talks about the the things they learned from them, the, the ideas that the, the Mi'kmaq helped them, actually, um, and exchanged a lot of information with them. I kind of just thought because, uh, you know, that's just me kind of making a harebrained armchair kind of a connection of them being uh, the predecessors of the Freemasons. And, um, you know, and if they were here, um, you know, what were they doing? They were hiding treasure, according to, you know, the people from Oak Island and, and well, I, all the treasure I love hunters. Oak Island, man. <laughs> so, you know, actually, at the, at the latest NERA conference that was uh, held a couple of weeks ago in Metamoros, Pennsylvania, yeah. Evan Pritchard, who's a Mi'kmaq, was talking about the Knights Templar and the Mi'kmaq connections. And Doug Kroll was there from Oak Island. So I met Doug and I, I got a chance to talk to Doug Kroll. Cool. About uh, a couple of different things. Yeah. But um, at the same time, I wonder, there was a great dying that occurred when Europeans first came over and or allegedly first came over. Uh, yeah, right, right. To explore and to hunt and to trap. When they first started coming over, all of a sudden, the Native American population started dying off. And we know that the Mi'kmaq were incredibly impacted by this great dying, like lost 90 to 95% of their people. Mm -hmm. So with that being the case and them being that susceptible to the European diseases, I have a hard time thinking they were able to interact with Europeans on an even earlier scale and survive that. So yeah. that for me is a bit of a sticking point when it comes to the Knights Templar Micmac connection. But mm. I, I gotta I've gotta stay open minded if I'm gonna come up with my own theories and put them out there too. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. And uh, hey, yeah. healthy debate is, you know, no, I absolutely. Think, um, you know, even David would tell you himself, question everything. David, I mean, that's the the big lesson I've, I've learned from him and and the things that, you know, he's taught us is, you know, don't take my word for it. You got to go and do your own work and your own research. Uh, you know, he's telling his, his uh, according to his tribe story, and um, he's he's a storyteller. He is a um, he's a sage, a sagean essentially, mm -hmm. which is you know the people of that are the keeper of the traditions, and um, and it's a, a pretty important part of of that. Oh, yeah. So, um, but you know, it's it's just a really really interesting that even in Maine, there's these things that are similar to where you know things that you've uncovered, and it just seems like. There's so much stuff that's coming out all over the United States with our ancient past. Um, is yeah, there? Well, I think there's a, a there's a, this concept that we grew up with that it was a pristine wilderness. Yeah, and and it wasn't. As as we look back now, we, Not at we all. discover you know if you read like uh, 1491 Charles Mann's book is oh, probably boy. the best example. That talks about how populated this continent was. Yep. There were millions of people ranging over this continent for over 10,000 years. Sure. So a lot of those ideas about how things happened that were created in the 19th century by white European guys mm -hmm. were based on the idea, oh, this was a pristine wilderness. So therefore, no boulders could have been perched by savages. Yeah. Um, you know, things of that nature. It's, it's, 
their biases really limited their way of thinking about what occurred here, and they made yeah. they, they made assumptions based on that that I think are still problematic today. You hear a lot of indigenous scholars talk about having to decolonize academia, and that's because a lot of these things were assumptions that were built based on white guys' assumptions in the mm -hmm. 19th century with their own set of biases. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, I mean, all the, the ancient cultures of Ohio are named after old white guys or their mansion. The Adena, right. that's the Adena mansion. It's just Hopewell, the name yeah. of someone's mansion. <laughs> Hopewell was a guy. He was a farmer. So, you know, <laughs> and that's going to be changing soon. From what I understand, they're trying to go with the Middle Woodland culture is one of them. Um, they're trying to kind of get that lexicon in, out there um, because it's just, it's not represented well. It doesn't age well. Uh, yeah, we have to call them something, but... Yeah, for sure. You know, it's like the Mississippians. What do we call them? Do we call them Mississippians? You know, Cahokia wasn't Mountain called builders. Cahokia. What do we call that? You know? Right, right. right. Well, I think but, um, Cahokia at least was a Native American word uh, from that region, from what I understand. I think so, but nobody actually seems to know what it means. Right, yeah. And, and that's usually not the case, yeah. And, and the tribes were like, oh, we didn't build this. This was already here, you know. This was already in ruin. Um, and yeah, but that's one of those things that I think we have to be careful about interpreting that kind of a statement. You know, if you ask somebody in New York, "Did you build this stuff?" Yeah. They'd look around and go, "No, I didn't build this. this. This was here from before. The people before me built it." Yeah, so it could it's have been fifty kind of years statement. ago. Yeah, I, I just think we have to be careful with those kind of assumptions, and and those have been used by those people that had those biases that I'm talking about to downplay Native American capabilities. Yeah, and so, I don't think okay. there's any there's any doubt that Native Americans were completely capable of building this. I just think it was their their ancestors of the modern day what we call the Cherokee, the Iroquois. I guess you could call it more current Native Americans, but um, you know, the earlier cultures of those people. Um, and it's like you said, you know, did we build New York City? No, the people 150 years ago or 200 years ago did. Um, well, you got to remember, too, there's that great dying that I was mentioning that yeah. we don't really hear that much about. But about 90 percent of the indigenous population got wiped out on the coastline in the first 100 years so that when the pilgrims arrived on Plymouth Rock, they were greeted by like one tenth of of the people that used to be there, mm -hmm. and Massasoit, Massasoit was was welcoming them because he needed help against his enemies who hadn't been as badly impacted by the diseases that had ravaged them. Right. But the the pilgrims like go inland and they find like all this like land that's already been domesticated, and they're like, God did this for us. Hmm. This is great. He killed off all the savages so we could live here. Yeah. Wow. To, to them and their religious mind, Jeez. that's what that's what happened. This yeah. then it's manifest destiny, and you can just go ahead and continue to move out west. Jeez. But uh, given that's that, too much for me. Given that, and we wow. know that that occurred on such on the same like or that that kind of devastation as far as death from diseases occurred throughout the Americas. Yeah, so there's right. actually a generational gap between the ancestral indigenous peoples and those that were contact peoples because they were trying to 
keep their act together based on you know what they remembered but they had lost 90% of their ancestors and the people that used to hand down the traditions yeah. so in a lot of cases they lost contact with their own pasts right oh absolutely that's like uh, mm-hmm. equivalent to burning the uh, library of alexandria i mm-hmm. mean there's all that knowledge just gone yep like yeah. in the aztecs overnight it didn't mm-hmm. take long for all those cultures to just completely collapse and lose their heritage and all the quatrains and all of the, 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 the those tablets were just destroyed. But there's like four left of the, the Mayan, uh, the, the most important books of their culture. It's like, well, what would be yeah. left for you to understand? Imagine what we could people? read. Yeah. Imagine what right. we could read if that was still Oh my there, gosh. Yeah. And we have so yeah. much information off the four that we have. It's like crazy. You, you almost have the whole Mayan calendar system and just imagine all of those tablets. And that's just one example. Go to the Inca, go to the Aztecs. Uh, but, you know, even in our own cases in North America, we look back and we can start to piece stuff together even based on just what's left. And mm-hmm. we realize that there was like an entire social upheaval that occurred post the, like, mega mound builders the cahokia the mm-hmm. the mound city the yeah. the people that built moundville where they were like this really hierarchical culture and they had a you know chiefs and they had priests and that whole thing changed that went away and what we see is a return to a more egalitarian society among a lot of those early indigenous people just prior to contact right which some of that is is probably encapsulated in the the Iroquois story of like how they had to subdue a, a sorcerer a leader in order to bring the five tribes together yeah so you know there's 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 evidence of this this social change that had gone on so we we're dealing with with cultures that had gone through major changes yeah just prior to our coming in and really effing with them yeah you know so right yeah so it's hard to say what what they can tell us now is 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 continuous all the way back but in 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 some cases it is so what what you're saying is it almost seems like they had been living here for 10,000 years they finally got everything smoothed out and then we showed up <laughs> There's right. one way to look at it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everything was figured out. Everything was settled. We got the wizard yeah. for the, you know, we got him under control and everybody's happy now. And then, hey, what the hell is that landing on the shore over there? God, really? But Cahokia, really? Had you know, collapsed. we just got it. Yeah, we just got it put together. Cahokia had collapsed before the Europeans came, though. Yeah, it collapsed in about 1100. Yeah. So. You know, that was just a natural fall of a civilization, Um, you know, whether it was famine. They're not really sure, um, but if it was disease or – but if that civilization falls, it's like right now we have a really advanced civilization. The mound builders, the Cahokians and the people here in Ohio, they built up this culture. And then if that culture kind of falls apart, where would we be in 100 years later? If we yeah. lose our power, we lose our technology, and we have to start. Oh, we sure. would we would be living as hunter gatherers. The people that would be left would be you know would be living a much more simple life. Um, so that fall of civilization, 
happens, and maybe the cultures become more simplified. Um, but they still There's also retain, people though that they, they say that retain. it might not have been it might not have been a civilization collapsing, but rather evolving. And yeah. so I don't think we can. It could be. I don't know. There, there are a lot of different theories out there right now. Yeah. Which is, you know, what makes this fun? Yeah, it really does. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, trying to figure it all out. I'm open to hearing all sides. You know, that's one reason why we do this show, because I've already learned like 10 new, 20 new things from Mike right here tonight. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, right. this is, you know, again, I don't know a lot about stone chambers and pyramid uh, stone chambers because and these stone structures, we're just far enough away where it's not really a day trip for us to go to Vermont, to go to, um, you know, Pennsylvania has some stone chambers. We could head to those. But, um, you know, I really, really want to get on the ground and, and, and check some of these out because they are just absolutely fascinating. And you can draw all these lines to Ohio. Um, which we've been able to draw lines from just about anywhere we go comes back to Ohio somehow. So this is well, tonight's been no different. I think <laughs> I think that um, I think some of this may be a tradition that came down from up here and north of here, down through like the Hudson Valley down into Ohio. Yeah. Um, one of the researchers that I now get to talk to, whose reports I used to read, is a guy by the name of Norm Muller. And he's dated these stone structures and, you know, things that look like cairns and, and some of these serpentine stone rows. He's, he's, he's found them in Pennsylvania and in Vermont and in New Hampshire. And he thinks, and I, I'm kind of agreeing with him, that Adina and Hopewell may have come down through here. And then these old stone structures may be evidence of that earlier culture kind of migrating down. And changing yeah. over time. Yeah. Well, we so have it could be all connected. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And one thing we found recently was uh, ammonite that was uh, discovered in a mound, a Hopo mound here in Ohio that came from North Dakota. So I was reading about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have uh, what seems like a pilgrimage situation. Is it trade? Are people coming to Ohio from all of these places? You have uh, volcanic glass, uh, obsidian from North Carolina. Um, you have uh, certain materials that are found in Mexico, Georgia, which is the Etowa Mounds um, that people are burying in, in these mounds in Ohio that are these materials are calling, coming from all over. Um, you know, at their time, was it a pilgrimage site? Were people coming from all over? Did, was New England that for those people? Maybe they were pilgrimage, uh, going on pilgrimages to the East Coast and bringing back all of this knowledge and information. It's, it's all definitely it has to be, to me, in some way, if nothing else, the astronomical stuff in the serpents. They're sharing information. In ancient times, it's up. Uh, it's well, total mystery who's influencing who. Um, there are woodland sites or, or grave sites up here in Vermont that have Adena grave goods in them. So they were they were trading. Yeah. It, it, until like the late woodland, uh, middle to late woodland period, things break down about then, and you see a, a ceasing of trade. But up until that point, as you say, there was a lot of interplay. You know, you get some of the the older archaeologists don't think there there was that much movement, but rather the objects moved. Yeah. But some of like again, younger archaeologists have more open minds on this stuff, and they think that people moved 
you know, far afield. Like mm-hmm. they, they, they'll say some of those, you know, again, calling him Medina or Hopewell now may seem wrong. I don't know, but um, they, think, okay. they think they could have ranged pretty far afield. Yeah. And, and I do think there was a lot more flow of people. I think they, they found it a lot easier to move than we did it. And when you look back at like the paleo Indians, those people were moving on like a continental scale. They didn't. They didn't Absolutely. stay put in one place. Mm-hmm. That's so true, and it's rivers, river valleys. Yes, you know they're all. We're Ohio's a river valley. Um, you know the all the rivers and lakes that are in upstate New York through all over New England. You know they're highways. You know they're highways and they seem, long lakes. watersheds seem to be territories. Like the the watershed of a of a river will be like one tribe's territory mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and another watershed will belong to another one and where those two meet is kind of like where their their cultures meet yeah the confluence of the Scioto and the ohio river is a big one and then you have the big miami river which spills into the ohio river which was in cincinnati all of those in cincinnati was a giant massive earthwork and mound structure unbelievably advanced all gone there might be one left mm-hmm. somewhere in downtown cincy but the confluence of the ohio and the big miami and the Scioto, all the way up and down the Scioto, chillicothe circleville <clears throat> all the way columbus mound street boom giant 60 right. footer we had an enormous 60 to 7 foot conical mound in downtown columbus they built the retaining walls because the river confluence kept flooding. They tore down that mound, named a street after it. That's all we got left. Mound Street. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what they do. They, they tear things down and they name them after what they destroy. Yeah. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, I'd like to So get they back. did tell us in history a yeah. little bit. They said it right there on that road <laughs> sign, at least a little bit like, hey, there's a clue. Yep. And Gosh. I've always seen mound streets everywhere. Never thought about it. Never thought about, huh? Now, every time there's a mound street, there is always a mound nearby, at least in Ohio. You know, it's, it's really, it's now I've seen things having seen the mounds in Ohio because I've gone out and, you know, taken a look at the beautiful earthworks out there. I've seen mounds here in New England or things that I do believe are actual mounds. And there was a researcher who did a presentation at the Fall Nera conference on the mounds that she's discovered all throughout New England. And you can actually watch that presentation. Her video is on YouTube as part of the newer presentations. But there's a What's there's another name? possible connective. Sarah Kohler. Sarah Kohler. Okay, we need to remember that. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, she's she's done a lot of work on, on mounds using LIDAR and... Wonderful. And, and plotting them along the courses of rivers. Wow. Fantastic. Wow. Great. Fantastic. Can't wait to look into her. We're looking at a lot of this as indigenous work in New England that it's still on the landscape, but it it's it's so unappreciated and and unknown that people just don't know it's there or assume it's other things, you know? So much is assumed to be like farmers' work. If you see something Yeah. Yeah, but, but this, these things that we're looking at here that we had up earlier, it's just like, it blows my mind. Uh, it, it really, really does. And if we look at this, this is an illustration here, that we're looking at. This is a, a what I think is what's left of a, a serpent effigy mm-hmm. that is all made of stone, and 
the the head is a giant boulder that juts up and the the wall actually slithers up to it there's like a, a bend in the wall where it comes up and over the back of the boulder to make the boulder appear to be a head and then the wall continues downhill and if you go downhill it looks like a serpent coming from that angle too mm. so, so oh, both uphill and together. downhill it looks I like see a what serpent. you're saying I see and what you're saying. It sits middle. right next to a spring, and there's like a frog effigy next to the spring. That's the first thing I saw was this thing that looked like a frog. I was like, is that a frog? And then I saw that there was this serpent next to it, and I was like, oh, wow. And so I told the Vermont State archaeologist about it. I'm still waiting to hear back from him a couple years later, but uh, oh, years really? later, jeez. Yeah, no, he he had no interest. They don't think that any of this is what? Real. No interest. Hold on. You're not going to at least go scope it out? I offered to show him it. I was like, How I much of your time right would it? be taken to just travel down to go? If I was that person, I'd be like, whoa, okay. Obviously, I'd be skeptical. You know, I'm an academic. I want to take this seriously. Let's take this from a scientific approach. But why would you not have the excitement built up in your bones to want to just, hey, let's go check it out. There could be something here. There might not be. But let's at least prove that it's not a serpent or a frog. But, you know, the springs are everywhere. Those springs are always right next to something, you know, some kind of a magical temple or Serpent Mound has a spring right underneath it as well. When I posted about this, somebody actually shared an indigenous story about a frog next to a spring with the serpent next to it. What? It's like, oh, man. There it is. It's right on the landscape. Man, you weren't joking. It, you, know? you weren't kidding. These dots are really starting to... Things are, are, are kind of clicking in place for a lot of this stuff, I feel. That is really cool. Let's see what the next one is. There it is. Oh, that's Eagle Chamber, so that's a... That's another stone chamber. This one is built on, on bedrock. Mm. So it's it's like partially natural and partially built hmm. and it's got like um graffiti etched into it hmm. from like the 17th century or i mean six uh 18th century so like 1700s so they they say that was used to store apples come on and it's like what? no 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 I mean, no 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 that's were, not an apple storage I'll tell you what they had some really specific stone structures for potatoes and apples back yeah. in the day. <laughs> Jeez, and what we're looking at again guys is another kind of hobbit hole looking um right it's got a very nicely shaped rectangular door these big again big stones that are creating this roof and then dry laid stones around this doorway and that kind of creates and is built off mike said the bedrock but it's just an absolute beautiful work i mean this is very very intricate if you yeah. look you can see how these stones kind of come together piece by piece to create that roof it's almost like an arch right mike mm. would you say it's 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 like an arch with a lintel on top yeah mm -hmm. that's so incredible and just the but detail Wow, and and it even seems like I have to say, having gone to see a whole bunch of chambers now, they there's definitely some that were built for like mundane usage. Yeah, they don't look like that. 
No. You know, you, right. you can tell, like, one thing I've noticed as far as, like, what I look for in indigenous work versus European work is European work is usually two over one, three over two, like, really, like, like brickwork courses. You know, sure. if you see bricks, the sure. way those are laid, very even, very structured, mm-hmm. whereas... Native American work seems to be more flowing and organic. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. what you see is even the representation of the, the serpents in inside of the stonework. Yeah. And some of these serpent rows, they'll they'll undulate across the, the landscape. And so I think when you see a chamber that's really built with kind of that square structure, not this chamber that we're looking at that has more of a round sort of shape to it, but there are some that are squared off and you can tell, oh, this is probably a later work. This is probably European. Mm. So It's not as advanced. But you can't, what I'm saying is you can't lump them all together. Yeah. You can't yeah. just say they're all root cellars. You can't just say they're no. all this, that, or the other thing. You know what? Some of them might be European. Some of them, this clearly, I think, you know, I've always said the the older the the you know you can go to whether it's Egypt, whether it's South America. It seems like the older stonework is the most impressive. You know, with these giant, huge monoliths, you can barely they're fit together like jigsaws. And then you see the more rudimentary kind of mortar and stone that's built on top of that from later cultures that were you know building their civilization on top of a much older civilization um wow that's incredible that's a we see that sometimes we see that sometimes with the chambers yeah like sometimes an old stone chamber that's clearly of indigenous origin Mm -hmm. is like patched up by later europeans yeah mortars added but i actually spent a couple years working as a mason tender so i got to see how you you know lay blocks and brickwork and Mm -hmm. that's like one of the many things that kind of comes into play as i'm looking at the stonework and you yeah. can tell if if they use the mortar to build the wall or if they use the mortar to just point it afterwards mm. you know and you can see with some of these things even though there's mortar it was added after the fact because they were trying to seal up something right maybe there was you water coming through or something or so even that isn't necessarily like a telltale that it's european but it can be okay when you see mortar so it's really tough to say. I mean, it takes a very trained eye and you have to really investigate these sites to get mm-hmm. that level of determination on was it indigenous, was it European, was it indigenous repurposed by European, mm-hmm. or was it indigenous repurposed by indigenous? So there's all these different layers of how do you figure out what the site is, and it seems like maybe most of the time it's haphazardly by, we'll say, history at large or science at large archaeology to where it's just kind of like we don't have time to look at all of these and so maybe it's falling more on the independent researchers now and people like yourself that are going hey we we've i've got a background in this i can understand some of this and look at it and, and, and pull these pieces together so it's really wild to think how many spots there probably are that need to be re-looked at mm. oh man yeah <laughs> you know i mean <laughs> Like just no, oh, that was that was you know European. Go on, mark it. You know, just put it in the ledger because there's thousands of these sites. We don't have yeah. time. I mean, like this site here, this image here. I mean, I bet nobody took a second look at this and thought anything interesting was about it. Or is this something that's considered an ancient site? This is something that I found that very few other people have seen thus far. 
and I've shown it to people, but I think this is a a fin that was carved into the side of the ridge at Raven Ridge in Vermont. This is a, a ridge that would have jutted up like out of the Champlain Sea uh, years ago because of, of the fact that when the ice sheets were pressing down on the, the crust, after the ice melted after the Ice Age, the land rebounded. They call it isostatic rebound. Hmm. And when that happened, stuff that was at like sea level rose. So like stuff that was on the edge of the Champlain Sea is now like 400 to 600 feet above sea level. Hmm. Stuff that was on the edge of Lake Vermont, which predated the Champlain Sea, is now at like 600 and 700 feet above sea level. So this oh. ridge, this ridge is like at about you know, 600 feet, 500 feet, between 500 and 600 feet. So it would have like been an outcrop, an island in Lake Vermont and probably like a peninsula or just jutting out into hmm. the Champlain Sea. So, so is I that think something... That, Sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. What? I was going to ask, be, having, having said that, is that how you set your scale for where you started searching at an altitude to get to that baseline of where the waterline would have been? Or was this kind of how you came upon this site more just... Yeah, describe what we're kind of looking at here. Okay, this, this, was, this is a thing that seems to be carved into the side of a ridge okay. so that it's, it's raised off and it was probably something that occurred naturally originally and then was shaped into this shape. Okay. If you look underneath it, there are places where they left stone mm. like and and it looks like the stone was chipped away around it. Um and so I started to look at this ridge more closely and noticed that there were stones added to the top of it to kind of look like fins and at the very front of this ridge or what I'm calling the front on the south end, there's a feature called an anticline which is a, a fold of rock, which I think they might have thought was the serpent's mouth. Mm. So you have that in on the south end, and this would have been up along its back, up along the ridge. So you're saying that this like would, this is its spine. They carved almost like a, a ridge that's the back of the serpent? Well, the, the serpent is... Um, the ridge itself is is the the spine of the serpent. Gotcha. Okay. And, and these these are... these are like fins that are embellishing the the spine of the serpent. Gotcha. And up okay. on up on top, there are added stones that I think are like almost like dorsal fins because mm. the the great feathered horned serpents had a lot of different features. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really sure of what I was looking at until I listened to an Abnaki chief telling the story of how. Odziozo built Champ, which is mm. the serpent that's in Lake Champlain. Mm -hmm. So this is a story about how this ancient transformer of the Abnakis built the, the 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 serpent that's now in Lake Champlain, and he did it by bringing together a whole bunch of features from different creatures to build this compound serpent creature. Wow! And that's oh, when wow. I was like, those are all the things I was seeing up on the ridge. And that's when I started wow. to do the the research and figured out, oh, this would have been like a, a, a seafront feature on Lake Champlain. Wow. Wow. So, wow. Champ. Oh my gosh, dude. 
I mean, we didn't bring it up earlier when we, I think I might have just under my breath said, oh, champ, you know, we're really into cryptids and, you know, Bigfoot and Sasquatch, uh, Dogman. And, uh, you know, so I've always been fascinated with the story of champ and the sightings of, of, of that. But having all these serpents connecting it with champ, I mean, that really makes sense to me. That just blew my mind, dude. Yeah, I think that's why it's a lake of snakes, you know. I think that they were building serpent forms all along it. I think that, you know, when when we look at Lake Vermont, I'm finding stuff at that higher level. And along the, you know, one of that map I had hoped to show was was showing the the shorelines mm -hmm. and where they are now superimposed on maps of Vermont. When I started to find this one feature that I called the a fin in an alcove. I think there's an illustration of it there. I, I started to find like a fin-shaped stone inside of uh, like a hollowed-out alcove. This this is a different feature, but um, that was um, something that seemed to only appear this this fin-shaped stone in an alcove at the highest altitudes. At the at the oldest areas, so I thought this might be like some kind of landing sort of like site for this ancient seagoing culture on Lake Champlain. Wow! Oh wow! So I Very think it was an indigenous seagoing culture that sure. existed, and I think that they may be one of these ancestor cultures that we just don't really know about. I think that they probably combined with the Algonquin after. The Champlain mm -hmm. Sea was just devastated and disappeared. Like, as the Ice Age ended, it just got cut off from the Atlantic, it sunk, and it, it turned from a, a saltwater sea to a freshwater lake. Right. So there was a wholesale change all along the shores of this, this lake, and they would have had to have gone inland, mm -hmm. adapted. We find later stonework up on the shores of Labrador, that dates back to the early archaic period. They call it the maritime archaic up there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That could be a remnant of this culture. Yeah. And we could see they're, com they're combining with the Algonquin yeah. when they came inland. And that's where we get the, the mounds and the stones from because right. they were preserving their culture, which was more of a maritime culture, which would have used the stars to navigate. Yeah. And the Algonquins are very famous for the salt mines uh, in Michigan and up in that area. The copper mines, um, you know, that they're the the you said the salt basically just got pushed down under the ground, and then now it's just essentially fresh water and land. Um, but like geologically, how does that land just uh, that sea? How long ago did that disappear? The the Vermont or, Champlain Sea yeah, Champlain Sea ended about eight thousand BC, so about ten thousand years ago. But they 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 found Paleo Indian camps alongside interesting timeline the shoreline. Yeah, you know? and so, did something cataclysmic? You know what could have possibly ended that and destroyed that sea, or it just completely disappeared? You, I wonder if it was over a, an extended period of time. Um, it happened but, relatively quickly in geological time from what I've seen looking go. at papers on, on the, the changeover from the sea to the lake. It was over wow. the course of like 100 years, what? which is in geological time really fast. That's super fast. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like something major happened geologically. Well, well, no, it, wasn't, it wasn't really that major. It was just that the, the, the 
the land rose up yeah. and the, the sea was cut off so that the water just kept pouring in, but it was fresh water. And mm. so the al alkalinity and the, and you know, the salt, the salt content dropped and things became entirely different all around the lake as far as the, wow, that's amazing. The ecosystem, the ecosystem changed entirely. That's incredible. So what it was, what's this image here we're looking at, Mike, is this a, uh, chamber this is the inside this is a theoretical uh this is a stone thing that would be on the side of a ridge okay in what i think they did trying to turn ridges into serpents okay these okay. giant serpent forms that would have like been on the water back in those days of the champlain sea so they i think they did this in more than one case because I began to find, I, at first I thought it was just at that Raven Ridge, that first place where we saw the the uh, the fin that you showed right. earlier. Right, right. But then I began to find things like this. This is on uh, the side of a place in Nickett Bay, in on Lake Champlain, further north, north of, of Burlington, even. And I thought it looked constructed. To to me, I'm seeing pieces put together. So this is me trying to draw what I saw laid out on the side of the ridge hmm. as a construct from overhead totally but because i couldn't i couldn't get overhead i didn't have drones or anything mm -hmm. so i was trying to right. draw, draw this structure that seemed to be laid out on the side of this ridge that's very interesting i mean i can totally see it that's so cool and this is uh Another. This is a pretty famous chamber. I know I've seen. That's photos the of this. Upton Stone Chamber. Yeah. yeah, that's in Upton, Massachusetts. That's the first one I went into where I had my experience, and that's when I, I decided these are likely indigenous works, and then I discovered all these people had been thinking this anyway. So it was kind of like that was my intuition, and then following up on that, I began to discover it wasn't just my intuition. It was, you know, something that was was going on that people were were talking about. That's when I was told you have to pick up this book, Manitou. You need to read this. Wow, yeah, I know that's influenced so many people that we we've, we've talked to. That book pops up all the time, and um, I it's one that I really, really need to get and I need to read um, and talk to those folks for sure. Um, well, they're not with us, unfortunately. They're not. Uh, Maver and Dix have both passed away. Oh, wow. What 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 is nice, though, is that uh, Byron Dix's widow, Diane Dix, has come into my Facebook group and thanked me for carrying on his work. Wow. 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 Awesome, Mike. That's amazing. Me and others. I mean, not just me, but yeah. me and others. Yeah, She was like, absolutely. I want to thank you and others for, for carrying on what they did. Takes a team. Right. And this in this here, is, this, this is, it looks kind of like a... I guess a, a dolmen maybe that's been tipped over. I'm trying to maybe describe what, what looks, we're looking at. It here. looks kind of like an arrow on its side to me. And this is at the base of Raven Ridge, pointing up towards the features. So that's really interesting. It looks carved. It does. That back of it shaped. really does. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, like a finger going like it's up this way. And what we're looking at for folks just listening is this uh, giant stone that's seems to be tipped over and is curved into a point from the 
top and the bottom that makes this creates this point. And it does look a lot like a, an arrowhead. That's maybe it's a direction. Maybe it's pointing somewhere or um, guiding people to some somewhere. It's a it's a marker of some sort. Um, but it does, it does seem, to seem be. directional to me. Um, you know, that's it looks worked. It looks like somebody had has chipped away to create that shape. Really, really and, fascinating. And this is what I was finding at Raven Ridge is is it looked like the stone was worked. And you know, not by metal tools probably. Yeah. But it didn't it didn't look like it was natural. And I've yeah. since been told, you know, this can occur naturally. Yeah. But a lot of stuff can occur naturally. It doesn't mean it necessarily did. Yeah, fair point. Exactly. Um, and when we think about the fact that there were millions of people here for 10,000 years that we didn't used to think about their actions, it's entirely possible they did something like this mm -hmm. along the way. I 100% agree. That's This is actually up in Maine. This is on that mountain in Maine I was mentioning earlier. Yeah. This this points towards the main site. Hmm. No, no no pun intended. This isn't actually <laughs> This isn't actually part of the, the main grouping of all those stone structures we found, but it's on the other side of the summit pointing towards it. And this stone actually points towards it. What we're looking at is, is kind of an arrow-shaped stone, and it's got a little stone sitting on top of it. The little stone sitting on top of it, we can't really see that well, but it is an incredible sample. Yeah, that's it, really... It has all kinds of colors. It's almost iridescent. And hmm. there's a little, like, gash cut out in it. And if you look at that, the, the stone sitting on top, the, the gash, if you follow the gash, you're, you'd get to a spring. But hmm. if you follow the arrow underneath it, you get to the other site, which has all wow. the stonework. Wow. And how, how, how big are these stones? That That is about... Three feet across that one. Okay, okay. Just perspective-wise, I was wondering if I was looking at this from, say, above, from a ridge down or something. And if oh no, maybe it's not the that big. It'd be like when okay. you're walking okay. on this a path. This is me standing up. Yeah, gotcha. this is me standing up above it. So gotcha. Okay, it's it's not that large a feature, but according to the property owner, this part of the mountain really wasn't used even by the logging company because it's wet and inaccessible. Hmm. So it's like this has just been sitting there for we don't know how long. Wow. wow. It's interesting, man. It is very, very... Well, does that archaeologist you, think that there's something to this stone here? Um, Curtis does. Curtis yeah. Hoffman, the guy who, who wrote Stone Prayers, he's one of the the few who's out there who's open-minded to this. Mm -hmm. um, he certainly thinks this is something. It looks like something. That's cool. I, mean, I don't know what else to say. Well, I mean, draw the conclusion from wild. the... the it's pointing this direction. Did you find something at the other end of that? That you know, yes. are, are drawing those lines <laughs> together. I mean, that's that's as conclusive as it can get in my mind. If it's not, you know, if it's pointing one direction and you end up, you know, and you go, hey, it pointed this way, you know, zigzagging in your mind. Well, no, but clearly, if it's directionally in the same point of sight, I mean, yeah. it, it seems like they are, yeah, markers. I mean. It's not like we don't use them, right? In modern Hiking trails. Well, still we have there's stacks yeah. of stones along anywhere, any trail out west. You're going to see a stack of stones that kind of looks like that. That's yeah, I had point. to learn what those were so I could tell them apart from 
what I'm looking at, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that's why John Hickenbottom, a lot of those guys in the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, they don't want you building those on your hiking yeah. trails. Yeah, oh, don't. Yeah. Don't do it. It's a, it's a no-no. Um, you know, we, we've seen them, people make those out west. Uh, that's when I first saw it was hiking out west. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, you shouldn't do that. Yeah, don't Post do that. Post the home. <laughs> it's not a good idea. Please don't build cairns and, and stacks of stones in public. And and even like in, in lakes and rivers, if you do yeah. that, you can be disturbing the, the lake's ecosystem or the river's ecosystem and, mm-hmm. and be killing off some, you know, hundreds of, of organisms. So you don't really want to do that. Yeah, it's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> public service announcement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Now, is this a different angle of a chamber that we looked at earlier? Or is this yeah? This is totally... the outside of the potato cave in Acton, Massachusetts. Gotcha. Or the okay. supposed potato cave. Yeah. Um, there are actually actual documented stone prayers all around this. Mm. That That's you know cool. this this is uh, this trail through time that they have in Acton, Massachusetts is one of the few places that publicly acknowledges that these are stone prayers that go back to you know, indigenous traditions, and they have kiosks describing it. Hmm. They have the Declaration on Ceremonial Stone Landscapes from the United South and Eastern Tribes, because the indigenous people have since come out and say, yes, our ancestors built with stone in the Northeast. Yeah, sure. There's resolutions that that are out there. Hmm. These are real things, and they're on kiosks near this this stone chamber, luckily. Wow. Yeah, and that's the thing is we just don't hear a lot of the, you know, a lot of the elders, they don't want to share these stories with the public. A lot of people like the Hopi and they want to hold on to their stories, their tradition to themselves and rightly so. You know, their culture has been destroyed. That's how this came out is because... You know, people like us started finding these things. There's a, 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 a an investigator down in Massachusetts, Peter Waxman, who has a site called Rock Piles, a blog, a blog called Rock Piles, one of the first ones that I was learning stuff from. He, like, got in touch with tribal representatives, the deputy uh, historic tribal representative for the Narragansett, and he went to his elders, the tribal representative, the historic tribal, you know, the deputy historic tribal preservation officer, let me get his name right, Okay, uh, Doug Harris. He went to his elders to ask them, did we do this? And they were like, yes, we did. And they proceeded to show him like places on the reservation where all this stuff was that they just didn't show or share. And the elders took this evidently as an indication that it was time to start talking about this stuff again. Good. They they stopped talking about it because every time they'd mention it, it would be called devil this or Satan that, and oh, they'd God. try to get it destroyed. So a lot of the places on the landscape that you hear devil's den or devil's mm-hmm. gulch or yeah. this, that, that was that was a sacred indigenous place of that course. got relabeled. Of course. Oh, wow. And so they stopped sharing their ceremonial spaces because they kept getting destroyed and labeled as, you know, Satan's playground. Or you whatever. can't blame them. Wow. You got to preserve right. your history right. and heritage is at all cost at that point. You know, you just, and then, then now, you know, our friend uh, Clifford Mahuti, you know, the Zuni just started sharing their knowledge about star people and their history. And uh, it's just something that, 
you know, the book of the Hopi was written, but it took that guy three years to write that book to decode mm. all of the stories and the history and the ceremonies and, and put it in. It's essentially just this thick, thick book that this guy had to, he lived with the Hopi and he was lucky to gain access. You know, they were very, yeah. they were not willing to share any of that information. Well, um, all this Narragansett elder has said is, let the landscape speak for itself. Mm -hmm. That's that's all he'll tell you. He, they don't say much more than that to the rest of us. Wow! But that's that's the guiding words there. Is let the landscape speak for itself. So this is that's speaking kind of, to me. <laughs> that's that's kind of what I took it from it. Is yeah. like, you know, as I started to look it's at speaking. stone rows in a whole different way, that's and I speaking. started to see designs. You know, I started to see. Oh yeah, I see how this these things are actual serpent representations. They're petroforms. They're not just stone walls. Mm -hmm. um, and once you start to see things that way, you can't unsee them. And you if they're not that. serpents and they're stone walls, it's still amazing. It's still yes, incredible. Okay. You know what I mean? Like even if they turn out to not be serpent walls, which it to me, I mean, it it's it connects in my heart that you're on to something, Mike, just from everybody that we've been having on and the people we've been talking to over the years. Um, you know, it feel it resonates with me. This some of the information that you're saying for sure. But again, even if it's not a frog and a serpent and uh, this head and it's still an ancient wall and that's good enough. That's amazing enough. Uh, and it's, it's just absolutely incredible how advanced some of these places are, you know, when it comes that, to the design. If, if we could go um, and bring back, there's a picture right there. This one? The the arched one? Yeah. That is that is um, the front of Raven Ridge. So okay. that is what I think could be the serpent's mouth. Oh. That's what they call an anticline. Now, mm. what is in that? modern like times. It's bending. Like the stone's it is bent. bending. That, bent. That, that's where stone's came together at a fault line That's and the crazy. stones actually bent. So that that is now called the oven by Western folks. Oh. But I think it could have been considered the mouth of the serpent at the end of the ridge, the southern end of Raven Ridge. It, it looks like a serpent's really mouth. It really looks like this, guys. If I'm gonna do my best to describe it, but we have this what what's encasing it? Is that all stone too? I mean, it looks that's smooth. That is just stone. And that is all have they natural. smoothed it? Have they? No. That's although it, I wonder if Native Americans altered it in some form. I don't know. That's just so strange. I don't know. I'm going to do my best to describe. Bub, maybe you can describe it better. I don't know. I mean, it just it, it looks like a. Uh, <laughs> It, it looks like if a tree grew on its side and had a big curve in it, right? Because I thought that was a tree laying over the top at first. But right. That's all stone as well. So it looks like, you know, if it's coming from the left-hand side, it's nice and flat. And it makes this very nice parabolic curve over the top mm -hmm. in one kind of layer of stone. And then below that, there's a lighter layer of stone that right. also is doing the same curve. Which looks bent. But then that's where, like that, that's where that gap Right, and then that's where that gap is opening up, and then it looks like the lower jaw of the serpent is below that. It's meat. right underneath it. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. what yeah. I was kind of thinking too. Because in all being these a fan shapes, of snakes and yep. growing up with them, yeah, that looks mm -hmm. like a serpent's mouth for sure. That's or, wild. And to to back or a to turtle Mike's shell. point of view, a turtle shell. Well, that too, but the energy flow, right? That serpent coming out of the ground. 
and trying to bring that energy out of the earth and in that fall line, like to me, that's just too spot on. Oh, right. I you mean, know, I mean, that's enough too about spot on. Fault lines and sacred sites here in Ohio that just like makes my head spin. Right. But weren't you saying earlier that the. But the serpent energy is like from the earth, Mike. Am I wrong about that? That you said no, no, earlier, you're, you're right. Of, it does. It comes up from the underground. From so I'm saying below. it's the Kundalini looks like man. It's literally burrowing out of the ground. Your sacred chakra is your, you know, near your spinal cord, and the Kundalini energy rises up. That's the Medusa. That's the uh, the symbol of our pharmacy. Uh, organization here in the United States. That's right. the representation of the, the serpents coming up from the bottom and working its way up. It also has something to do with water because sure. a lot of these a lot of these stone forms, like the stone rose, the serpent rose, and and other stone forms like the cairns, a lot of times they find they're built over sources of water of high permeability where the water is closer to the surface of the earth hmm. so these seem to not only like be representational but also maybe functional in that they mark actual areas where there's underwater or underground water permeability mm -hmm. and there's something about water and rock when it comes together it does create kind of you know, dowsing rods and people that are uh, looking for water. They have this electromagnetic phenomenon where their their stems cross, and and it's always mm -hmm. where that. It's just a really all of ancient sites, particularly uh, all the ones I've been to. There's always uh, some kind of a river or a stream or uh, an underground cenote. In Mexico uh, or a spring, it's just, it's always there. And this is along Lake Champlain, you know, this, this would have, this go. would have been on the water back in the days of the Champlain Sea mm. and Lake Vermont before it. So, yeah, that's too crazy. That's can, so cool. And if you just had somebody that would like, could recreate that old map and put, I'm sure they could. And, 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 you know, like 3D model all these sites on mm. the old Lake Champlain or the Champlain Sea. Man, that would just be incredible. You could get a really good understanding of like, hey, this was on the shore right here below is the water. You have all these sacred sites around it. And then it really starts to come together like, oh, there's something here. The state does have a good resource as far as like you can you can go to the Vermont Geological information oh, that's center i think it is and uh yeah that's an even closer look it almost looks that's like crazy you know right um, yeah so this is just a little closer look of and again that rock looks like it just straight up bent over into an elbow shape and it looks like the mouth of a snake coming out of the earth it's wild unreal Vermont has online resources where you can overlay maps of the, the Champlain Sea and Lake Vermont over modern-day Vermont and, and wow. get an idea of where those shorelines were, which I've been using because when I find stone stuff, I'm like, well, why is this here? Yeah, And then so I use that as one of my diagnostics. And Brilliant. that's where I started to find, you know, the, the, the fins on the shore, so to speak, and and then I started to find these these large scale serpent forms, perhaps eight thousand years ago. That thing went dry, and now, so that means these 
It, did, it didn't go dry completely, though, because we still right. have a lake. Yes, so it we just still receded. have a lake. Right. But it was, uh, was it larger in size or it was roughly the same size? It was just the it was, salt. It was larger in size, much larger okay. in size, yeah. Okay. But, this reminds me of that story that we came across with the um, the Paiute Indians. Yes. And Death Valley and the Havmasovs and yes, when there was but, water there and it connected to the ocean, the Pacific, you know, this seafaring uh, race, the Havmasovs, were, you know, cruising around in their in their boats but when that water receded and turned into Death Valley, they stayed up in the mountains. Mm. You know, they it's it's a wild story. It's a little bit off tangent from this, but just in that kind of similar vein of the lake where was the water line, where did things go to? It makes my brain start thinking about the fact that, you know, we're we're on our timeline, our scale, our zero level, right? Where were things at that you know, could we be a thousand feet up in this location and go, well, that used to be sea level mm -hmm. to whoever was here. I mean, it's 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 kind of blowing my mind to think that we might be looking in the wrong spots a lot of times now, naturally, because it's not where things were. We're at a different uh, horizon line. Yeah. And the Havsmasses had wild. flying canoes or the stories yeah, of the Paiute. And these ships yeah. that they would would come out of, and they would they would go up and visit them from time to time. But they were up in the mountains, but they used to be on the level with the waterline, and then right. they they slowly started moving and receding back up to the mountains where they well, preserved they, their they technology. Built, inner Earth. They built a city. Yeah. yeah, they built a city back into the Sierra Nevada back mountains. into the, the like the the pinnacles. Yeah, up, up into the arches and the. Uh, points of the mountains and um it's a story being recounted from a paiute elder to a non-paiute member that is in there kind of this journalist at the times from these you know older kind of western journals um yeah. but it was interesting to kind of what you said earlier was that knowledge and generational loss with the the great die-off and and that gap from the oral tradition being passed down um, from this story, the Paiute elder was saying that it was more of even the um, younger generations just had lost that connection to where they don't care about these stories anymore. We yeah. can tell them stories like this all day long, and it doesn't matter mm -hmm. to them because yep. they don't have the same connection, um, which I think is interesting as well, because we as the time we're living in, it's hard for me to wrap around the fact that how was you know, that just not, not interesting? long ago. <laughs> yeah, well, not just long ago, our 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 entire country was not what it is currently now that's not that long ago that's you know a couple hundred years that's not thousands and thousands of years ago yeah. so i mean it's it's tough to even wrap our heads around well if you think about it if if they were doing these kind of landscape size alterations they were probably doing mm -hmm. it to tell the stories mm -hmm. because like you know if if this we're actually looking at, we were looking at a, a frog effigy, you know, and, and, a, and a serpent effigy. And that I said, you know, related to uh, a story that was told by, by the Abnaki long ago. And once they were moved off of these lands and pushed westward by mm -hmm. the settlers, they would have lost touch with the, the stories that were encapsulated on the landscape. Sure. They would have been cut off from, from their heritage that way too. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so we're looking, I, I'm, I have immense amounts of respect for the indigenous people today because they have preserved culture mm -hmm. despite 
many attempts at having it wiped out entirely. Yeah, absolutely. And being oral. Well, you know, it probably shows why they're hesitant to want to share with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what they still have. But yeah. Like, you know you what? Know, I mean, these elders, a lot of elders are getting the um, sense that now is the time for some reason to come out. Right. And talk about this stuff, you know, Tom and Terry and uh, the people they bring into Serpent Mound, all the different cultures, the Maori and, um, you know, the uh, the Dogon have been out there. Right. And they're, they're bringing all these indigenous cultures from all over the world. And, and they're speaking at these events, talking about their history and their culture for the first time. <laughs> it's like, right. Wow. And this stuff yeah. is just starting to come out really in the last less than 10 years. We're starting to get a lot more yeah. information. Um, and, you know, I respect it. Mike respects it. Bub, you respect it. Stoner and Disborough and Master do. Control yeah. respect it. But a lot Definitely of people do. just still really don't care it doesn't affect them if you can't make money off it if it's going to impede oh, something Jesus. but because here's <laughs> the thing as soon as we discover these sites now you can't build a shopping mall on top of it yeah so a right. lot of these things get kept secret or they don't come out if an institution does discover it it's like well let's just kind of not let anybody know about this so we can continue and, and move forward with the, whether it's a construction project I don't know, but it, yeah, I'm suppose just I'm a happy. developer's worst nightmare, you know? It, it really is. They can lose <laughs> I'm, I'm millions. Saying, hey, look, dude, we need to save this stuff. You can lose millions, <laughs> of, a million dollars a day on some of these sites. If you run into an archaeological site, you're losing millions of dollars. And, you know, these so, guys got companies and stockholders. They're, they're not going to let an 8,000 year old stone chamber stop them from putting up whatever. And a lot of these are on private property. Thank God, Mike, you know what I mean? Mike, I was just thinking you should have like a Mike Luoma, like a realtor sign, like an anti realtor <laughs> sign. Like when you go out and find these places, be like, don't, build anything here damn it like you know yeah, instead like of like this land is for sale like no it's not reality. there's something here we need to look at and preserve and understand developer not blow up to make a bridge or a highway byway like let's not blow this up too yeah like jesus i like that idea and hey you yeah, know like there's developers that are doing good work you know our buddy mike cobb from eci you know no absolutely but i'm just i thought it was hilarious in the anti version of like you're not buying yeah. this land like there's something yeah. here already like appreciate what's here mm -hmm. we don't have to turn everything into a parking lot we don't have to pave everything and we're gonna lose we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna end up not knowing that what the hell's going on we're going to look around. It's just going to be parking lots everywhere we go. Hey, our city's already be became that. Right. And that's what I'm saying. You look at Columbus, Ohio. We've already lost all that. Oh, now yeah, all we yeah. have is Mound Street mm -hmm. to, <laughs> to show us. And you know what, what I'll tell those people? There. Those folks that don't really care, go sit in that stone chamber that Mike did. Go sit in there quiet right. for an hour. And you're not experiencing it. That's why you don't appreciate it. Jump right? in one of them chambers. I'll bet you if somebody could experience it like Mike did and have a little bit of an open mind, they, they might be changed. Uh, right. I just think people don't get out and see these places. I mean, that like that's well, I, I read about it. It didn't affect me until I went started going to these places. 
until right. you go there, then it becomes real. Then it becomes this thing that hits you in your mind, body, spirit, like, oh my gosh, this is special. Not only is this special, right. but this has been hidden. This has been, uh, you know, we don't understand this. Why is this a mystery? Why are there, why don't we know this stuff? Um, and it just why becomes doing what I do, you know? Yeah. Right. I wrote the oh, book, absolutely. Well, yeah. I've got the Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Why I do videos. I, I do videos that I call experiencing. Cause that's what I want people to do is I want them to experience these places and, and realize that there's value to them and worth and, and maybe something sacred, you know? Yeah. And let's, let's, let's think about what we're doing and maybe preserve them Yeah. and be more aware of what, what's come before us. Well, I'll tell you, Mike, I'm not going to lied to you and tell you I didn't have the uh, idea or thought of us coming out and shooting some stuff with you because we are a video production company as well. Um, We have uh, some great documentary film camera uh, systems and um, some gear that, uh, you know, we've tested out in the field and um, this kind of thing is something that we're, we want to shoot more of. We've shot a lot of really amazing things for other people. We're starting to shoot our own content and uh, not just the podcast, but we want to get out there in the field and and help people like you and and show the world some of these things that are just unbelievable mysteries to us. And one of our passions is getting that out there, um, talking about it like we're doing on the show, but boots on the ground, you know, and it would be incredible to, uh, you know, go out and document some of these places. So oh, we have to have you come up here sometime. Just thought I would put it out there. <laughs> it would be Welcome an incredible honor. Incredible <laughs> honor. Um, I've heard yeah. so many amazing things about uh, Vermont. I've driven through a couple times, but um, the the ancient history oh, of Vermont. It's, it's in great. I know, Bub, you've done some skiing there. It's a beautiful state. Yeah. And uh, I, I came to Vermont to go to college and just never left. It, mm. It's just that kind of a place. <laughs> yeah. It captures your soul, you know, and I felt like I was in the place I was supposed to be. Although I love the place in Massachusetts where I grew up even mm-hmm. more now that I'm doing this because I've sure. learned such the deeper history of that area yeah. that I didn't know in, in the past. So it's it's kind of wild even how these two areas are are connected because mm-hmm. I also discovered that people were kidnapped from the Marlboro and Hudson area where I grew up in Massachusetts and brought up through Vermont through a river that's about less than a mile from my house here and up Lake Champlain and up to the Montreal area. So there are actual indigenous connections and and kidnap connections, if you will, between the place I grew up and the place I live now, which is pretty wild. Hmm. Dang, that's super that's cool. That's so crazy. And incredible. And, you know, the highways I drive along run along the rivers that they used to use as their highways. <laughs> Amazing so you're, how you're, that you're, all just You're came. kind of always wrapped up in it, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always Well, he didn't around. realize That's it so until cool. he started uncovering yeah. it, too. Like, you've been sitting exactly on that. Exactly that. You know what I mean? Right. You've been kind of Very sitting on it. Flowing through them, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Now, and, and each of these things is like, you know, it resonates when you learn it. It's like, oh, yeah. oh, you know. And then you get the sickness <laughs> is what I call it. That's what I get. I get the sickness oh, of yep. just being that bug of, holy crap, here we go. Um, I'm looking... 
I need that next big thing that takes my attention and holds it like the, the earthworks in, in, in Ohio. I know there's mysteries out there to be discovered. And, and through this show, I think I think we're going to continue to keep finding uh, more and more mysteries. There's a lot to uncover here in Ohio. There's a lot in Vermont. There's a lot in Massachusetts. The Hudson River Valley. I mean, it just never ends. Yeah. Um, you know, we have another show that we do called Strange Happenings. And what we found out is that strange stuff never stops happening. It's always happening. <laughs> and and there are strange connections, too. Like yeah. with, the, with the Stonework in Vermont, one of the first conferences that was done up here on all this stuff was in the 70s. And okay. it was Professor Warren Cook at Castleton State College who put this big ancient Vermont conference together. Hmm. The other thing that Warren Cook is best known for is Bigfoot studies. Hmm. Makes sense. So what I was All going right. through, I went through his papers. I went to Castleton and did some research. As I'm reading about all the stonework stuff, I kept coming across all this Bigfoot stuff. It was yeah. like it, not my my gig, but yeah. it was kind of like it was kind of wild to see how there were connections between things. You there know? always is. I mean, we love Bigfoot. We love ancient oh, yeah. civilizations. We love the you know the the UFO sagas that are going on right now, seeing strange things in the sky, uh, you know, it, it all really does. And we talk about this a lot, how it, it does interweave. You know, I started out being obsessed with the paranormal and ghosts and Bigfoot and UFOs as a kid and, and kind of um, got really burnt out on conspiracies and stuff like that in my 20s. And, and then the lost civilizations came into my life at the right time where I needed a, a spiritual uplifting. And there's spirituality in that search of ancient civilizations when you start talking about these temples and these perfect geometric structures and the cosmos that they were uh, tracking. And, and it was this very intense religion that was scientific it was spiritual um, they had a type of technology that was much further beyond our material understanding and um, and all of those passions to me the ancient civilizations has it all together it all comes together yeah and I, I think that we're only beginning to understand the ancient civilizations that were out there. Mm -hmm. Like I was saying, I think there's one that was on the Champlain Sea that was yeah. a seagoing civilization that, you know, could have inspired stories of Atlantis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and and then I look at the, the old Abnaki lore that talks about things similar to Seven Sages coming ashore. Mm -hmm. You hear them talk about their, their Thunderbirds, and they talk about a guy who went and found the Thunderbirds and found that they took off the Thunderbird wings and put them to the side. So he went and got into the Thunderbird wings and tried to take them up into the sky and ended up crashing. But then because he did that, they took him to the Thunderbird place up in the sky right. and turned him into a Thunderbird so he could fly with them. Right. What? Right. Amazing. What? Wait, I, I want to do that. Where's that at? I... <laughs> That's yeah, I mean, awesome. That's there's a lot of no, I'm not gonna say the same, but there's you hear these stories of, you know, the sky people coming down to earth, taking a, a certain chosen member up into the sky with them. You have the stories from the Bible, Ezekiel, um, you know, these stories we hear throughout history. I mean, they're even on in petroglyphs, they're in ancient art. It, it's you know, are they visionary states? Are they real occurrences? 
Are they, you know, some sort Maybe of... That started to say that these that this civilization, the Abnaki, is as old as those other ancient civilizations because yeah. they have those same kind of stories. Right. Mm -hmm. But we weren't aware of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like... Mm -hmm. I didn't hear of this when I when I'd read Graham Hancock writing about the seven sages, he doesn't mention the Abnak. Right. You know? Right. But there it is. It's right here in our own backyard. Mm -hmm. You know, these people are these people have those stories too. Mm -hmm. We need to consider them as as an ancient civilization. They have their own Veracocha, right. their own Enki and Enlil, their own uh, you know, Quetzalcoatl. That the, there's the, the it's this, all these stories, whether it's Horus and it, it seems like they these type of stories are in every culture. Uh, you know, the, the ancient Indian epics have very similar, like these men came ashore and they were these, you know, the people that taught the folks how to read and how to plant crops. And it's just unbelievable. It just never ends. These line, these things that line up. And this is another yeah, piece of the puzzle for us, Mike. Makes you think it goes way, way back. It and I think does. it does. And I really do think it does. The more of these conversations I have, I mean, I think there's a lot of work to be done, but it sure does seem like that. Um, now, Mike, I feel like I've I've told you guys so so little. <laughs> like, there's so much that I could tell you about that that. Let's is, go. Is... Let's go in. <laughs> what else can you tell us? I really like I mean, the, where this is going. There's there's a there's a mountain north of here on Lake Champlain called Eagle Mountain that looks like it's a stepped pyramid when you look at it on lidar. Mm. And I have found I've found stones there that are turned to the side to make like the representation of either fins or gills that they're done in threes and they replicate as you go down level by level mm. on these steps of the mountain so that they're like you know, six feet tall near the summit, you get down a level, they're like 12 feet tall. Hmm. You go down another level, they're about 25 feet tall, and they're turned in the same manner wow. all the way down the side of this mountain. So I'm not sure what was going on here, but again, wow. this would have been an island in Lake Champlain or in the Champlain Sea yeah. way back when. So, wow. There, there's there's so much up here that just makes me scratch my head and wonder. Wow. All along Lake Champlain. There's there's Camel's Hump is a is a prominent mountain. That's what we call it now. On the horizon when you're at lake level and and pretty much all around you see this mountain. It is a shape that I seem to see replicated in stones that are standing up all around New England. Like, I've even seen one in the Flag Swamp near that old stone wall that I mentioned, the 4,000-year-old one, that looks like Camel's Hump in Vermont. Mm. So that made me wonder, too, if that was like a sacred mountain mm -hmm. that they replicated in stone. Right. Mm -hmm. All the way down right. the coast. Like a mi yeah, like a miniature, like a model of it. Right. And And when I found out that those circular ditch mounds had artificial horizons around them. I began to wonder, could that have been the horizon of Lake Champlain or some other ancestral homeland? Right. It didn't necessarily have to be the horizon there that they were replicating. Because what they found is that 
it was the same artificial horizon around all the different mounds. So we'd have to do some work, but it'd be interesting to see if you could find what that horizon was. Sure. What it represented. And, you know, was it the ancestral homeland of these people that were stargazers and built mounds? Yeah. Yeah. And then they maybe came to Ohio, came to Kentucky, came to Indiana. Wow. West Virginia. And in waves, Mm -hmm. you know, in waves. They might have been, there might have been an initial uh, bunch that came down that are like the the precursors to Adena. And then we know that the Hopewell has slightly different, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, more ornamental sort of uh, approaches. And, and so that could have been another like wave that came down mm-hmm. and, and brought, brought like a reconnection to the earlier culture. Wow. Is there anything else that you would want to share, Mike? Is there anything that just has been burning you up that you <laughs> you're on right now? What are you currently researching? Are you, uh, when the book was done, have you kind of just, Put the stone mysteries on the shelf, or <laughs> oh no, oh no, <laughs> I was uh, say. <laughs> um, I I I just was in Massachusetts, found a couple of interesting sites in like Central Mass that I don't want to say where they are because Massachusetts is so populated, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I found what I thought were like old stone rows that could be serpent rose and shared them with some of these other researchers who were like, wow, that's just like something I found here. And mm-hmm. So um, what I've been finding is that if I find out that Indians, Native Americans, indigenous people lived in a certain place and I go there and it's got the right conditions where there's ledges breaking out of the ground and water, there seems to be this ceremonial stonework. Mm. It just seems to be in those places. Yeah, like like I found out there's this park in this one central Massachusetts town that is on an old pond and it's surrounded by old farms. But the Nipmuc used to live there. Well, it turns out when you go to where the Nipmuc used to live, you find ceremonial stone landscapes, mm. or at least these serpent rows and these things that I've shared with other researchers to get their their confirmation on and they they say yeah that that's something so i think that there's a lot to this and i'm just really tip of the iceberg at this point yeah i was gonna say there's so much work to be done and for it to be even accepted i think there's a long road ahead for people to unfortunately start taking this stuff seriously and I think the more and more people that you get interested in it, the more you talk about it, the more the word spreads. Um, you know, getting the next generation interested in this stuff is um, something we're passionate about. Um, you know, it's uh, always keeping the the mystery alive for somebody to keep keep going. You know, one day somebody will pick up the torch from you, Mike, and and continue on the gentleman that wrote the uh, Manitou's book and the the book Manitou. So it's... Uh, I also, I know there's some other books in the works, though, that are going to be coming out, like these other researchers that I'm networking with. Yeah. I think you're going to start seeing more about this. Fantastic. In, in a I'm more in. accessible way, you know, so... Great. I just saw a great presentation by this other guy, Dan Pozzoni, at the last Nero meeting. 
you know, in New England, a lot of this stuff gets explained away as being, you know, colonial or sheep farmers. Mm-hmm. What he's found is the same work, similar to the 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 designs that we find in New England. He's found it all the way across the country. Mm. And that was his presentation is like, here it wow. is in Kentucky. Here it is in, you know, New Mexico. Wow. Same type of stuff mm-hmm. that we have up here. It's just not as well documented in, yeah. in New England and it's not tied together. Mm-hmm. And and what that does is it, it eliminates those myths of the colonials built it or the the sure. sheep people built it because sure. well they weren't out at these other places. Yep. So they didn't build it here and it's the same as it looks in New England. So right. Yep. There's 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 I, I think we're on the verge of stuff happening. And and as I was mentioning, I've got the Ancient Stone Mysteries of New England Facebook group. I feel like People have already taken the torch from me there. Yeah, you know, because there's there's people posting stuff that I know a year ago they were like, "What's the deal? What's going on?" And now yeah. they're they're, they're like, full steam ahead. <laughs> yeah. Look at there's this massive turtle effigy. <laughs> the internet has so, taken over. <laughs> yeah, so, I remember I, going on your Facebook group like, "Wow, this is really really active." There's so many posts. There's so much information on there. Guys, go check out Mike's Facebook group. It is incredible. And you also have your Glow in the Dark Radio Facebook group and and all those as well uh, that you guys should check out for sure. I oh, mean, yeah, we're going to talk about my science fiction and stuff. <laughs> yes. I, I, I mean, if you want to... Can you talk a little bit more about Nira? Because when we were... And then we'll, we'll kind of switch gears yeah. here. But real quickly... When we first met, you were going to this NERA conference, and I said, that's awesome, because when you come back, when when we get something narrowed down, I'd love to hear more about some of the people that, and you've talked about some of the speakers, but um, who were kind of the top guys that were at this NERA conference, and uh, tell us a little bit about that organization. Well, NERA was started in the early 60s, like in 1964, by amateur uh, archaeologists and antiquarians, and it's the New England Antiquarian Research Association. And early on, they were very much in the the kind of mode of thinking that there were pre-Columbian European explorers here. Hmm. And so that's the basis for a lot of the work into the 70s was, was looking at the chambers and the stonework as being of possible pre-European origin. Hmm. But in the 70s, these guys, James Maver and Byron Dix and a few others, started to say, well, wait a minute, maybe not. Maybe there's an indigenous origin to some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And they began that side of research. But what you find is that the organization is is open to both of those views. Although I think these days it's probably more people are, are focused on the indigenous origin of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but Basically, it's it's just a, a volunteer organization. People join. They're state coordinators, chapter coordinators. Um, speaking of Oak Island, Terry DeVoe is the Atlantic Maritimes coordinator. He's shown up. He's a researcher who's shown up on on the Oak Island program, mm-hmm, and he's mm-hmm. the one of the second vice presidents of of NERA. So Terry was there. He was like the master of ceremonies for the conference. Cool. Um, and and it. Uh, Glenn Kreisberg, I don't know if you're familiar with Glenn and his work. Mm-mm. He's out of the Catskills. Um, he's got a book called Spirits in Stone, 
and he gave the um, key, keynote address on on Saturday and talked about some of the the stonework he's been finding throughout the Catskills and near Woodstock, New York. So, wow, it's it's a it's a very cool organization. There's a lot of people that are just on their own initiative out there, mm-hmm. checking out stonework and trying to figure out, you know, how it all fits together in history. Wow. I didn't realize there was this many people researching this stuff. This is incredible. You know, like I said, I haven't really been able to find a whole, whole lot in terms of like books, but you just said, you know, a lot of this stuff is like starting to come out now. Um, but I'm just so thrilled that there's this many people researching and you have these conferences, uh, you know, in this organization, NERA. I want to learn more about it. And I think our listeners, you guys should definitely go check out uh, NERA. And, um, you know, is this a conference that just anybody can go to? Is this something where... Well, you have where... to be a member of NERA, but it's okay. $20 a year. And if you, and... you know, if you become a member and and pay to register and go to the conference, yeah, you can go. So awesome. Nira, Nira.org is their site. Nira.org, everybody. Check that and out. And they they do have stuff on there, too, from, like, these researchers I've mentioned. Um, this guy, Norm Muller, is, like, a legendary researcher of, of the stonework. So you can read some of his research reports there on the Nira site. Fantastic. There's... Guy Larry Harrop did a lot of stonework investigations, took a lot of photographs. He passed away, and it looked like all of his stuff was going to go away because his internet went away. You know, all of his his internet presence was gone after he died. Oh my Nira god! picked that up, and now is hosting wow. it on their sites. So. Oh my god, that's incredible! That yeah. Wow. You know, I've always kind of wondered that. Some of these guys are getting up there in age. Like, what happens when yeah. you know we have a uh, you know a a, a friend uh, in Ohio that's an amazing researcher that's fallen ill here in the last few months, and uh, you know we've been worried about about him and and you know I know Jeffrey and some of the folks in the community in in Ohio will definitely preserve, but it's like wow this guy's he has so much information like when he passes, where does that go? You know, luckily he's written a lot of books and um, but it's always uh, amazing that Nira did that. To you know, I was really psyched that. to see them do that. That was amazing, that was impressive to me. Very you know, impressive. Like, well done. And so, I've gotten more involved with Nira in the last year or so. And great. And it's you know the uh, president of Nira, Harvey. Uh, why am I spacing on his last name for some reason? <laughs> it <shouldn't be. laughs> it's happened to um, me like five times already. This episode, it's all good. But he. he he'd kill me he read the book and he's like excellent writing and he's like now i want to come up and see that stuff in vermont that you were talking about that (laughs) large-scale stuff he's like either it's real or it's pareidolia so let's see right that comes up on this show pareidolia all the time yeah yeah gotta be aware of it because we do do that our minds do do that Now, Mike, I know one thing that I kind of left out of your intro is you're a voice artist uh, as well. And uh, is that something you've been doing since your radio days? Um, pretty much since 2006 when I started narrating okay. my own books. Oh, wow. Um, I was looking for a way to promote my science fiction book I had put out a year earlier, Vatican yeah. Assassin. And I was like in between radio jobs and I was trying to figure out 
you know, what, what can I do? I can't advertise on the radio. Uh, right. And I started podcasting the chapters of my, my novel. And in so doing, I, I read the characters as voices. Cool. And just kind of started doing this stuff yeah. without realizing I was doing it. Yeah. And um, after narrating my own books, which I've got about uh, eight now. Um, wow. I started narrating other people's books. Okay. So uh, for Audible and so of, forth, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. So you can so. you can find me narrating. For some reason, I've become a self-help narrator. Like people who do self-help okay. books like me to narrate self-help books. So I just I just did one on fix overthinking in relationships. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do have a nice and calm voice. I like listening to you for sure. I mean, I've been digging into your uh, episodes, and, and you do have a very pleasant voice. You know, it's somebody that you can you can tune into and listen to for a long time. So I, I, I make the connection there. Uh, oh, thanks. And you said you have eight books. What was the first book that you wrote? Was that The Vatican Assassin? That's Vatican Assassin, and uh, it was a case of, you know, they say, write what you know, and I was, like, raised Catholic and knew a lot of Catholic history and knew that we used to have assassins that worked for the Pope. Mm -hmm. So my book took place in the not-too-distant future, about 100 years from now, and the lead character is an actual assassin for the Vatican. Wow. The new Catholic Church. I could buy is, that. Is... is involved in a, a Muslim Christian war. And so he's an assassin for the Vatican as this whole thing opens up and he's sent to the moon to kill the governor because the governor is, is uh, unstable. They they think that she may be going to the other side, although she's been neutral. So that's how this whole thing starts. And that's awesome, man. That's it kind of exploded from there, you know? Yeah. That's really cool. That's great. Uh, what, what What's the other kind of, I mean, are they all science fiction and kind of taking uh, different pieces of just history or context and re reforming them? Or, you know, obviously with Vatican Assassin, do other books follow a similar kind of theme or, or kind of interpretation? I kind of just used that as, as my jump off point. So I grew a whole future out of that Vatican Assassin. Okay. That that became a trilogy. So it's Vatican Assassin, Vatican Ambassador, and uh, Vatican Abdicator, because the lead character actually becomes Pope and then abdicates. Mm. Okay. Nice. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It, 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 it's 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 a crazy situation. The the lead character is is not somebody who should be Pope. So like he he gets into this situation where finally it happens and he's like I'm the fucking Pope. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know that I went on a deep dive of the his the history of the Pope of all the popes. Uh, me and Bub, yeah. Bub were raised Catholic, uh, so you know we uh, I, I was fascinated that there's a, a YouTube channel called um, uh, Charts. It's a it basically lays out all these charts and one of the charts is the history of the pope and then i watched a, a whole series on uh you know back in the day there's just some popes that just got thrown into there and did oh, yeah. not want the job at all so that's totally historically sure. active accurate and then you had popes that were just power hungry and then they would put their sons into power in powerful positions and um you know there was a, a time a period there where 
there was a run of some pretty corrupt uh, people that were in the papacy. Oh, yeah. And it's super, super fascinating history. Um, but, yeah, I definitely went on a little bit of a deep dive. So I, uh, what's the most recent book you wrote other than um, the, the Ancient Stone Mysteries? That's your most recent book. Uh, and I know you write some comic books and, and stuff like that, too. What was your uh, last non, uh, nonfiction book that you wrote? Last nonfiction or fiction? Or I'm sorry, last fiction book that you wrote. Uh, that was – I've got a series now that is – Features the son of the Vatican assassin. His name is Alibi Jones. So it's an awesome. This name. was the fourth, the fourth book, and Alibi's series is called, or the fourth novel, like the sixth book, because there were some short story collections. But it's the Star Seeds of Earth. Wow. In in my universe, there was like this ancient star going race that, as they collapsed, sent off their DNA in star seeds, and that's how. We actually got started here on Earth. It's the kind of panspermia idea wow. put into play. So in this book, The Star Seeds of Earth, I wanted to kind of combine some of the stuff I was getting into. Yeah. So it actually opens with Alibi Jones going into a stone chamber in Vermont. Yes. Yes. So that's, yes. that's how the Star Seeds of Earth goes on. And, Dude, and, and, I, I mean, that'd be something finds, I'd be into it. I'd be into that. Yeah. He finds the star seed. He finds a star seed is still on Earth, and it looks like an ancient obelisk. Whoa! So, that's crazy. That's, that's kind of where I love I'm going. it. Awesome. <laughs> that sounds so, awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's there's similar like underlying themes because it's me. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, sure. But I mean, people that enjoy your books, I mean, that's something that you know they can connect with. And it's like, it's a Mike Luoma original, baby. You know, that's oh, yeah. what makes it you. That's what makes your your art. <laughs> and, and and it's kind of fun to narrate my own books because then people yeah. can hear how I'm thinking of yeah. it as I'm sure. writing it, you know? Sure. Nobody better to interpret your own work than yourself because you have those inner monologues. You know, yep. you're hearing that story as you're putting it out and you know, you know, the angle of, of how certain things need to come across emotionally speaking yeah, or, you know, point. the severity of it. Cause I, I, I know that I like listening to audiobooks. I know Kyle does and Mike as well. So, yeah. um, yeah, it goes a long way. And when you can really capture that story a little bit better. Exactly. It's yeah. I mean, and it's a lot of people have to hire a, a voice actor to, you know, especially if it's nonfiction, um, but right. you know, it's because, you know, they can't read the characters <laughs> or they can't, you know, do, they're just writing a book. They're not necessarily able to, uh, you know, act out the entire book, even though they've written it. So it's an interesting mm -hmm. kind of a combination that you have, Mike, with, uh, and I'm sure your audiobooks are, are popular. Um, and, and, uh, I mean, could you tell us a little bit about you have your website, mikeluoma.com, you have glowinthedarkradio.com. Uh, tell us where we can uh, buy these books and connect with you. Well, um, as you say, actually, glowinthedarkradio.com and mikeluoma.com go to the same website, and that okay. has links to everything else. Great. So you can go to those. There's my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Mike Luoma or facebook.com 
uh, Ancient Stone Mysteries of New England under the groups. You can find me there. And I'm on Twitter as at Mike Luoma. I'm on uh, Mastodon as at Mike Luoma. I'm not on TikTok, although... Wait, no, I am on TikTok, although I don't do much on TikTok. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. We okay. got slowly into TikTok ourselves. <laughs> We're on TikTok, but it out, took a while. <laughs> I haven't figured out how to do my stone stuff on TikTok yet. So. Yeah. Yeah. When well, I do, I will. <clears throat> talk to the wizard stoner. He might have some pointers for you because we kind of had that same kind of, uh, we weren't sure how our content fit into TikTok, but, uh, you know, we have a growing page on TikTok and have a few followers. It, it got kind of thermonuclear there for a little bit, but uh, we're posting again on there and uh, <clears throat> it's a fun one. But, you know, this kind of stuff, people are really interested in ancient civilizations on TikTok. There is a, oh. a big little niche, I guess you could say, on TikTok of people that are putting out some pretty cool content on uh, ancient civilizations and all over the world. So it's definitely a growing, burgeoning part of TikTok for sure. You're not just seeing – it's interesting. It's like anything else. You know, When Twitter came out, it was used for a specific thing. TikTok was like weird dance videos. Now it's becoming something a little different where you can – really easily with the algorithm kind of finds people for your stuff a lot quicker and easier than some of the other platforms we've found. Um, so, um, I do a lot of like long form video. That's why I'm like, yeah. like if you look at my experiencing videos, yeah. on the ancient stone mysteries of new England yep. YouTube channel, yep. they're all, some of those are like two hours long right. that I put together. Right. So I'm not used to working in like little tiny TikTok well, your TikTok could be yeah. like, hey, I'm walking into this uh, this chamber. Here's the outside. Here's me walking in. You're going to notice this. You're going to notice this. And in a minute and a half, you're walking out of the chamber. You just gave a minute and a half tour of whatever chamber it is. And then you yeah. make a yeah. hundred of those with every chamber that you go to or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, I could see the, the long form stuff for me, I, I still really, really love because that's where you get kind of the in-depth. You get the full picture. Um, but the TikToks and some of those stuff, I think it really does help pull people in. Um, it, you know, gives them a, a little snap into, uh, and then maybe they'll go and, and dig into and get completely obsessed and watch a bunch of long form documentaries or read some books like yours. Um, but you know, who knows, hopefully they're not just trapped in that minute and a half video world and they're, and they're not just dancing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, uh, you can also, uh, you said you're on Twitter, Mike, uh, find you on Facebook. And, um, is there any last word that you would like our audience to hear? Is there anything that's just burning that you want to share? Ooh, I, I've got something I made that is a special thing I can share. Okay. This is, a um, let's see if I can get it in the camera. This is. An excerpt. There you go. So this is the the chapter from the book on the stone chambers. Okay. And what I've done is I've turned it into a color excerpt because I couldn't print oh, the whole cool. book in color. So this is like just these pages done in color. Nice, Mike. Oh, wow. As an excerpt. So if you go to ancientstonemysteries.com slash excerpt, the only people I'm telling about this are people who are watching this right now. Awesome. But if you go to ancientstonemysteries.com slash excerpt, you can follow a link to this and get it for 10 bucks. Oh, dude. Oh, cool. That's great. 
hundred percent. Just if you're watching this this podcast, that's really right cool. Now. Thank you so much, Mike. You guys heard that? That's cool. Uh, we heck, we'll put that in the description. That's one that uh, I'll play back and yeah. pop in the description uh, for when this absolutely episode premieres. I think that's the the color photos. I mean, the photos in the book are great too. I mean, they're in black and white, but they're fantastic. I'm glad. Yeah, that I couldn't couldn't do the the color photos throughout. Sure. 300 page book because it would just be prohibitively expensive right right exactly but like so i, I said these that's that's fantastic. really cool though i i like that little condensed down little snippet though you know i you haven't seen still... anybody do that before yeah that's really smart. just an idea i had i was like dude yeah that's a great idea sharp. yeah i mean and i mean a lot of books like that it'd be really really interesting if he's, the word gets out mike you might have a bunch of people Kind of ripping off your idea there because it's brilliant. I know I would if I That's was. That's fine. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, I mean, I I think if there's any last words besides this, though, I just want to say I I want people to open their eyes. Yeah. Be aware of what's around them, and that there's history all around you, yeah. whether you know it's there or not. Absolutely. That's. 100% and that's what we're here to hopefully, you know, get that message out as well for you and and for ourselves and and that uh you know, have an open mind, um, connect with Mike if you're interested in this stuff. There's a lot of researchers apparently that I had no no idea were out there just now me and Bub and Stoner and Disbro learned about. So, you Great. know, we really really appreciate the heck out of you Mike. Thank you so very much coming on our little Absolutely. show this has been an absolute blast we're approach, approaching three hours believe it or not uh, really that went wow. really really flat uh really fast we got caught in some kind of temporal bubble you know where time <laughs> just completely slipped away uh, which is the, always the best episodes for us when i look up and i'm like oh my gosh it's been almost three hours where did the time go this has been fantastic mike we appreciate you so, so very much. I don't want you to leave. We're going to come back. We're going to outro the show, but we're going to come back and give you a proper goodbye. Uh, and I just want to thank you again, your information, your books, you guys, you're, you're crushing it. Uh, and thank you so very much uh, from the crew, from me. Uh, I know we'll be talking again, so we'll stay in contact. But oh, yeah. thank you so much, Mike. Well, thanks you guys for having me. It's it's been a pleasure. This is I can't believe it's almost three hours. It just flew yeah. by. Flew by. <laughs> and wait till next time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mike, you stay right there. We're gonna outro the show and we will be right back. But guys, Bub, incredible. Mind completely blown. I've got 10 more things I My need to look into. Full. Cups yeah. full once again. I can feel full. it reaching the brim. It's starting to spill <laughs> over. So that's when I know yeah. in my being it's it's time to time to all right, Mike, you gotta start wrapping it up, buddy. Cause we could probably go another <laughs> how many hours? I don't know, maybe one or two. Um, but this has been fantastic. Bub coming yeah. in from North Carolina. Uh, thank you Absolutely. again, Stoner. Uh, Disbro there in Master Control. There's Check the out shot. that. Yeah. The Master Control camera that's new this week. Brought to you yeah. by Stoner, <laughs> no longer style. the loner. Uh, and Disbro, give us a little wave, bud. You're hiding back there. Where you at, Matt? Is he in there? Disbro. Is Disbro in there? Oh, okay. Disbro. <laughs> <He left>. okay. 
okay. He might have left or got a snack. He he might have a shoot tomorrow, but uh, (laughs) that's a good point. (laughs) But uh, you guys can find us at the Strange Road. We're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Check out the Facebook group, the Strange Road Hitchhikers, growing all the time. Uh, And you know, don't forget uh, all of the uh, links and uh, description for Mike's work. Uh, You guys can find uh, his YouTube page. Find all those things in the description. Um, If you like this video, if you like this podcast, please share it. Get the word out about Mike and all the work he's doing about uh, the ancient stone mysteries of New England. And, uh, you know, we'll keep bringing you guys great content, great interviews. And, um, you know, there's... uh, you know, we have uh, a couple things that are new in YouTube. Uh, we're launching the super stickers and super chat. So, you know, that's something that uh, we're activating and going to start talking about. And uh, I think, uh, you know, you guys support the heck out of us. We appreciate you all so very much. Uh, Mikey signing out. Bub, any last words from you? Did we forget no, anything? None. Did I forget no, anything? I think we covered it all. Okay. No, it was a great <laughs> episode. I, you know, I, my only thoughts is just one of these. You know, I love the fact that you you come across something, you go, "Hey, we're going to have this guest on. We're going to yeah. talk about stone chambers." It's no brainer. I, I go, "Fantastic!" Yeah, I might bring somebody on, and I go, "Hey, I've got this guy. We're going to talk about expatriation and living." And you go, "Great!" You know, it's just it's so fun to have that back and forth of just. This is this is for anybody that doesn't know. This is what Mike and I do all of the time. This is what we've done for our whole lives. Is going. Have you heard about this? We've gone back and oh, forth. No so shit. now it's kind of <laughs> playing out. Yeah, it's kind of playing out in this bigger you know format now, which is really fun. But yeah. um, I think it's interesting to kind of impart on people listening or watching. Like this would be like if you knew us before we ever did this too. Yeah. We would do this to you at our jobs. We would do this to you at get togethers at functions. We, yep. Hey, I just heard this, you know, story or article. So I think it's neat yep. that people are kind of just getting this interaction that again, we, we just always have. And we're kind of like, you know what? I think people want to hear this. Yeah. And uh, exactly. it's been so much fun. And it's if you, so much fun. and if you guys like this, you like this episode, you like what you're hearing, you like what you're seeing, share it. Somebody else might be interested yeah, in Stone please Chambers. Do. You got a crazy uncle or a weird cousin, chances are they're going to enjoy something like this like we do. Yeah. So, again, signing out. This has been amazing. Thank you so much to all you hitchhikers out there. Peace. Take care. We're out. Signing out.